Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brenda P. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our one, wait a minute, not our 193rd episode of the Nauticast. No, <laughs> no. This one is actually our very special episode called Stump the Chumps. Part, what is this? What, what, what's Stump the Chumps number are we up to at this point? Is it like I think it would like five or five or six, something like something, that? Yeah. something in that range. So yeah. many chumps to be stumped. <laughs> well, we are definitely the chumps to be stumped for sure. Uh, so this is our, our special episode um, talking about answering you guys' questions. We got a number of great questions on Patreon. And I see there's already a number of questions that are queuing up here on my little sidebar for this episode itself. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate you guys stopping by. Um, before we actually got into get into the episode itself, figured we would we did explain this a couple times on Patreon and on Twitter and, and things like that. We want to talk about why we're foregoing doing Tyrion 9 right now. And I think the, the biggest issue with doing Tyrion 9 is that is a chapter that deals with the riot in King's Landing. Um, the, the bread riot that starts as the Lannisters and their friends are progressing back from the docks of, of, uh, of the Blackwater rush back to the Red Keep. So we didn't, we, we wanted, uh, you had a really good Twitter thread about this uh, last week, which I thought was really, uh, really excellent. But I think like, for us, for me specifically, I felt like that probably didn't want to trivialize some of the issues that are going on currently in the world at large. And I felt like it was a good, not probably not the best timing for us to be doing that chapter, even though it was completely coincidental. I guess we shouldn't have taken like done like the prologue in like two two parts and, you know, Davos's chapter in nine parts with Frank, you know, so. <laughs> Clearly we were setting ourselves up for that. But yeah, we didn't we didn't want to trivialize it. We just thought it would it could end up feeling very, a very kind of cheap and tawdry episode and that. Dealing, it was dealing with a song of ice and fire in this way made it made it seem very small and in a way just kind of yeah. not worthy of you you people who listen to us. And we just we just didn't want to do that. And as, yeah, as I was trying to say on Twitter, it was it was difficult because you know in many ways the King's Landing ride has no connection to what's going on in, in our country right now. But in some ways there there are parts of that chapter that would make it impossible to not talk about it. it would make it seem cowardly to not bring it up. But right. also, we would have difficulty doing it in such a way to deliver it justice. So we're certainly not never doing a Clash of Kings Tyrion <laughs> Nine, and when we do a Clash of Kings Tyrion Nine, it definitely has to be in context with how we talk about these things in the real world. But we thought about doing it in the midst of it right now, as a you know fantasy podcast with two white men. It's like that's just a recipe for an, for an embarrassment of an episode that would be beneath the standards of our audience. So we're going to have this kind of very kind of chill hangout episode tonight. We'll put this out for everyone next week, and then we, we will move on for the moment to a Clash of Kings Davos 2, yeah. which is all about Stannis. So Stannis. I think we'll do just fine. Yes, I think it's a perfect place for us to, to be. And we will, of course, get back to Clash Kings Tyrion 9, and we will try to do it and treat the, the topic with the sensitivity that it deserves given current circumstances and, you know, allow perspectives to be share with us and that we can also potentially like relate to you guys as well so we really appreciate you all sticking around giving us a little bit of space this past week uh so we really appreciate you guys most first and foremost and uh thank you to emma too because i was actually the primary reason why we didn't have an episode last week so thank you man i appreciate well, it well anytime jeff of course you'll be always you've uh, you've uh, filled in many gaps for me in the past so i'm always happy to do the same and yeah it's yeah it's we just don't you know, obviously, whatever we do here has no effect on anything important, really, beyond just your guys' well-being, and we didn't want to, like, insult that and, you know, to, to demean people who are going through struggles in, in the context of our little podcast, because really what we want to do here is hang out and make you guys happy, so that's what we wanted to focus on doing today. 
absolutely and here we are you are always making me happy and now we get to, likewise like, buddy radiate that happiness out to to the general public which is just uh, amazing uh, before we progress to our questions because we have many many questions I just wanted to say welcome we have two new members of the small council that joined within the past two weeks I just wanted to briefly say hello to Lord Nick and hello to Thucydides Lord of the Plagues which I absolutely fucking love that name because uh, yes. if you didn't know I was a th- I read did a lot of like Greek history and, and during that time it's just Thucydides like who could Herosky have guessed go, yeah I know right Herosky could go fuck himself but Thucydides was the shit man. <laughs> like that I, I, I love reading Thucydides back in the day and um, yeah so I really appreciate yes. that name and appreciate it again Thucydides wrote a really nice uh, message to us as well and thank you man we really really appreciate it very much welcome to Nick and Thucydides Absolutely. It sounds okay. like some sort of odd couple, like they're, you know, <laughs> one's a cop and one's a fastidious doctor. Nick and Thucydides, will they get along? <laughs> Can't have that show now because one of them's a cop. See, automatically. Automatically. It's automatically. Here anyway. we are. All Continue, right. Continue, sir. Yes, sir. So uh, we figured we, we would be kind of alternating between questions that we got on Patreon because we did. Uh, solicit questions from you folks who are our patrons over on patreon.com forward slash notcast asoif and then talking about some of the live questions you guys have for us okay first question comes from sir grimble thorpe who asks hi guys unfortunately the livecast won't be in, at an eu friendly time no sweat but can you answer this one question when will the wins winner be released well <laughs> that depends on the information that you know jeff acquired through secretive black market means and can never Mwah. share with anybody properly. You know, I you know the 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 one silver lining of the various crises plaguing our world is that George R. R. Martin has nothing else to do with his time. That's true. Let's just let's just put it that way. And he is, uh, although he has said that um, he he was saying last year that he's going to get the Winds of Winter out or complete before. Um, Worldcon, which is going to take place in New Zealand this year. Of course, Worldcon was canceled. It became a virtual convention. And so George came back and said, ah, well, now I have more time to finish the Winds of Winter. And you're just like, oh, come on. Like, I, nothing nothing is breaking for us correctly here. So, uh, I, I, how much can I say? I'll say it. I'll just fucking I'll say it. I, <laughs> it's, we, we all deserve a little bit of break here. I, I had heard a while back. So, we're talking probably six months ago that George's publishers were expecting it at the end of this year. Um, so whether that's actually going to materialize, I don't know. I, it, this has happened before, I believe, that George's publishers had expected the book to be completed at the end of the year. I think that was a big part of what happened in 2015 into 2016, where George R. Martin thought that he could complete The Winds of Winter and deliver it to his publishers. And his publishers were like, yes, that sounds great. Please deliver, complete and deliver <laughs> The Winds of Winter and we will take it. No editing necessary. We're just going to take it. And we're going to turn around and publish it as many as we can publish at the time. Didn't turn out to be the case. Um, George's estimates for when he can complete these books are uh, notoriously uh, notoriously wrong. And that goes all the way back to A Feast for Crows, which he said was going to come out in 2002, 2003, 2004. And then it came out in 2005. And then A Dance of Dragons was going to come immediately the year after that. 2006, then 2007, <laughs> 2008, 2009. He skipped right over 2010, and then finally came out in 2011. So uh, George's uh, progress in writing The Winds of Winter is something that we uh, – it, it's it's tough to see it to say when exactly it's going to come out. But I, I – you know, I, I, at one point his publishers thought it was going to come out at the end of the year. Whether that means anything or not, we'll see. I have hopes, but the th- you know, it's, if it's sheer linear progression in terms of amount of pages, I think he's definitely there. The problem is he's been there several times because right. he keeps rewriting stuff, and I, you know, I'm I'm totally fine with that because I love the versions of Feast and Dance that came out of that process. But that means you know making predictions based on him being in his cabin, tempting as that is. It's like you know, for all we know, 
he's tearing up a bunch of pages too. You never know. And that's the thing too is like he like at, after he, when he was writing a dance with dragons, he had like over like nearly 550 pages left over from a feast for crows. He's like too easy. I could write 450 pages between, <laughs> you know, sure. But you sure can several he sure times. Can. Yeah, he, like he, he literally, and he said he said this before. Between like 2005 and 2007, he ended up unwriting something like 80 pages from the from A Dance of Dragons because he's like this material is shit. So he ends up rewriting it. Comes out with like 472 pages after he does all the rewriting of his material from A Feast for Crows, and then he starts writing new material after that. So. You know, you never know what's going to actually happen with George's progress. He could have like an amazing period of time where he just like progresses through very quickly. And th- this is something I was, I was bringing. Up, I was bringing this up to Emmett in pre pre production because uh, I'm inshallah I'll be hopefully releasing an essay tomorrow about how George Martin integrated the Ironborn into, into a Song of Ice and Fire. Um, a lot of people are like, "Man, why did A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons take so long to come out? Like these books just seem like they should not have taken as long because we know A Storm of Swords came out very very quickly. He wrote it very quickly in doing. All of his research for the Ironborn and then Dorne before that, and then eventually I'll be progressing onto the Blackfires, the Marinese not. I am shocked that both these books actually came out at all because it is like a <laughs> fucking impossible task that George took in order to progress these books to publication. Because like the Ironborn were never supposed to be POV characters. Then Theon was a POV character. Then George thought he could talk, tell the Euron, Euron story off off page. Then he decided to bring it back on page. But then as a mega prologue, then he split it up as, from the prologue into multiple chapters. Then those multiple chapters became more chapters. Then he ended up writing up more Ironborn material, rewriting that material, then publishing what he had there, but he had leftover Ironborn material for the Winds of Winter, and so on and so forth. So the complexity that George is dealing with in writing those two books, of Feast of and Dance of Dragons, is immense. And it's only, I think, gotten worse with The Winds of Winter, which is why it's taken, what are we up to, nine and a half, nine years since since The Dance of Dragons was published. The more you think about Feast and Dance, the more you realize how amazing it is that anything got to print at all. It's like the, there's the quote from uh, about, about Apocalypse Now. We had access to too much money, too much equipment, and little by little, <laughs> we went insane. Yep. And I feel like that's a dance with dragons. Like, George is just Martin Sheen in the mirror with that one so it's like you know those are as, as anyone can point out Feast and Dance are obviously much messier books than than uh, than Game Clash and Storm but uh, yeah that's part of what I love about them I love the kind of in- intense weird unique energy that came out oh, yeah. of that writing process and yeah it's going to be curious to see if, if, if Winds uh, feels much the same and I, I think it will so it's you know I've always got you know my my tweet ready in my save the drafts file for when the when we get a release date for the Winds of Winter is you are going to hate the Winds of Winter because <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to hate yep. the Winds of Winter because it's going to be feast dance on steroids I think that's a great. You, you had brought this up before, not not the not the not the finalized draft, not the finalized tweet, but the, the the draft version of it. And I think you're absolutely correct. Or maybe it was was it you or was it Matt? I can't remember Joe Magician or you. I think I think Matt has Matt has said similar things, and I think he's absolutely right on the money. Yeah, so it's it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be great because I, you know, we both. Oh, love we're gonna love it. Yeah, yeah. but you know, general population is gonna look at it and be like, "What is this?" It's gonna be one of those cases. I think, like with David Lynch, where an artist becomes mainstream kind of by accident, and then the the mainstream audience sticks around, and, he, and then the next thing he makes, everyone's like, "Wait, huh? What?" Because <laughs> like, yeah, this is that. This is actually George R. R. Martin. This is this is his kind of his writing style. But yeah, it's it's one of one of the things I'm gonna be very curious to see. People are going to be like, Where, where's the Battle of the Bastards? That was supposed to be in this, right? I saw that in Game of Thrones. Hmm. Why is this all about Euron and John Connington? And, yeah. Who's Ariane? Who Why does every action Arian? scene seem to be making fun of itself the entire time? It's like, yeah, this is what it actually is. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to be great. I, mm-hmm. I simply cannot Bur- wait for the Burn off the bandwagon. No, nah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm being glib in part. I think uh, I think people will, will love to have anything, and I think that will be a, a huge swell of it, too. 
Uh, someone asked how the how, the, how long a dance with, I can't find it right now, but how long is is a dance of dragons take from publication from completion to publication? It took seven weeks. Uh, George finished it. I can't believe I know all this like rather yeah like, you do ridiculously minutia, but Jeff finished Don it Cannon on April third, two thousand. No, I think it was like April third, two thousand eleven, and it was published on July eleventh, two thousand eleven. So I remember reading that on the back porch. I remember the cicadas and everything when I read that that summer. I remember reading it, the audiobook, because I was going back and forth to work, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I and I was still like in that that point. So it was like it was after season two, a day complete. And I'm like, who is Victorian and Young Griff and John Kyneton and Arianne Martell? Who the fuck are who all are these, these folks? Yeah, this isn't right. This is so seven right. weeks. Is that okay? Seven weeks. It could take longer because the reason why it took as short because most you will never as a first time author you will never be able to turn around a book in seven weeks. It'll be unless you like have like the potential New York Times bestseller. You're never going to turn around a book in three months. You could be six months if you're like going to be on the bestseller list. But for a first time author, it, it takes. And I've talked with folks about this at about, about a year to go from finishing the book to actual publication. Um, and that is assuming you have a book agent, you have your your pitch letter has been accepted. Your, I mean, it, it, like the process is is rather intense for actually becoming a published author. So uh, it's yeah. impossible, is what we're saying, folks. Wow, we're, we're, we're going to challenge impossible. shit out of that. Damn right we are, pal. But anyway, okay. I have a question for you, Emmett. Since we've we've talked enough about the Winds Winter no. and a Dance of Dragons and a Feast for Crows and the Ironborn, you can read more of this essay tomorrow. Like I, I don't know if it's, it's any good, good or not. It's gonna, you know. I love it. you. You we said that at the exact same time. You said I. I don't know if it's gonna be good or not at the same time. I. I, I said it's gonna be good. Oh, oh, God, it's so hard being people. Anyway, I, I just hope this essay doesn't take a giant shit on someone's chest. Anyways, okay. So I have a question for you. So mm. we've talked about your book several times. We've mentioned it before. Oh, okay. I am, and and I, you know, I've, I've talked about my book on on Twitter and stuff like that. So it's kind of, of basically me at this point. So can you give me like? Your elevator pitch for your book and what it's all about. Okay, it's uh, it's about uh, a bunch of people trapped in different worlds who realize they're all being screwed over in the same way, and they all have to be able to to cut through the walls in between them to be able to do something about it all at once. And some of them are extremely successful at that, and some of them fail miserably at that. But uh, that's 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 yeah, it's um. It's 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 got some of the some of the grit of something like a, a song of ice and fire, but in a more kind of a, more kind of St- Stephen King direction, more kind of kind of monster and fairy tale direction. I'm trying to draw from a, a lot of different kinds of stories and have each kind of character reflect their own little genre, and they all kind of they all have a, a journey to take to realize the level at which they're being screwed over. And, and uh, you don't have to do this, so you can say no. Can sure. you? Because I, I absolutely love it. Can you read the opening line from your book? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Orion winked from between her fingers, starlight silvering bitten nails and scars she no longer bothered to hide. That's so good. Like, well, uh, thank it, you, it, sir. It's really, I, 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 you. I keep promising you I'm going to read more than just the opening par- three paragraphs, uh, uh, but uh. kind of like just soaking in that before I move on. Well, a lot, I, you know, a lot of it I have to rewrite for, for clarity because, you know, my, my uh, flaw as a writer is I get too in love with language, and so a lot of it's overflowed. So a lot of what I do in rewriting is just kind of straightening that up. But, you know, the, the writing process itself is, is so much fucking fun. And I'm having a great time at that. I'm over over 100,000 words at this point. So it's it's chugging along nicely. Um, and I hope to yeah finish this draft hopefully by the end of the month. or uh, Wow. If not that, by the end of next month. It's been going great lately. So that's been that's, that's been amazing, man. Thanks. I'm proud of you. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. But just the, the writing itself is just... Uh, um, 
it's just great. It's just a uh, writing makes me happier than anything. So I wish I could share your sentiments because writing just like depresses <laughs> the fuck out of me. All right. I mean, there are, there are times when it's a drag, but overall, it's a uh, it, it overall it enlivens me. Thank you for thank you for inquiring, sir. You're of course. Nice. Please buy Emmett's book when it comes out. Soon to be Tim's published straight. by like Random House, I'm sure. All right. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'll put First it question myself. comes from Clint, which I still absolutely love the picture. He says, question for the boys. Favorite Coen brothers and best Coen brothers. Do you did not have to be the same answer? Well, that's a very well put question, Clint. Well, I, I say Joel. Are you an Ethan guy? Uh, I don't, this is, this is something I've not, which I actually don't, as much as I love the Coen brothers and love all their movies, really, I don't actually know which of them is, does the thing and which of them does the not thing. I I I don't distinguish them in my brain. I was just making him, was just making a joke of which Coen brothers, favorite Coen brother. I completely, it was, it was so dry. It was such a dry Coen brothers-esque joke. It went right over my head. Right over your head. Yep. But yeah, no, that's true. Exactly. That's the point. Who knows? I'm going to guess yours is going to be Raising Arizona. It's probably your favorite Coen Brothers movie. Oh, interesting. No, although I have that that is on HBO Max, so I should uh, I should rewatch it. That is an old favorite of mine. If I had to pick a a favorite of mine, um, it'd probably be A Serious Man. Okay. Uh, uh, I just I love it's just this like just slow, perfect ratcheting up of like ethical tensions and the the question of whether whether God exists and anyone's watching and how the impossibility of, of of finding out. Um, and it's just it's a it handles it handles specifically Jewish questions in a really great way. Like there's the a young over eager rabbi who's like God isn't everything. Just look at the parking lot, Larry. Just looking at that parking lot. And that's such a that's such a culturally specific thing. Of like he's just at a rabbinical school and he's just alive with the glow of how the you, know, you know Hashem is in everything. And this I love that. That's that's very specific. Um, I like that a lot. As far as but yeah, favorite versus best. I mean. Yeah, it's hard, hard to top No Country for Old Men in terms of best, I think. Yeah. I think in terms of sheer, like, filmmaking, gravitas and and, and bravado. Uh, uh, Barton Fink is maybe, like, the most kind of, like, intellectually advanced, like, weird one. But uh, No Country for Old Men won all the awards for a reason. That is a is a really, really good one. How, so how would you answer these questions, sir? I, I honestly think my favorite and the best one is the same, which is No Country for Old Men. I, I mean, I, I love True Grit. I think that was a sure. relief. That's an underrated one. I it's should rewatch that. One, I remember yeah. loving the ending of that one, so I got to go back to that one. It's so good, and it features Presbyterians, so you know it's a good movie, you know? Cause, right, Because the right. girl is a, is a, you know. Yes. So it's all, it's, it's really, really a... Uh, it's, it's a fun one. So if you're not seeing the one, go ahead and see the one. Uh, the one actually, I, I, people have told me like to, that they really enjoy, but I just did not enjoy a whole lot. Was Hail Caesar? Were you a, were you a fan of that one? Or I, I like that one a lot. I know uh, I know why a lot of people don't love that one because it's that one is uh, deals with so many serious things that it refuses to take seriously. So I yeah. get why that I get why that throws people off. But I as as a comedy, I really love it. But yeah, left left you cold. Just a little bit. I mean, I, I maybe I, maybe I should give it another chance. I keep trying to give movies that I that I didn't like that get like critical acclaim uh, additional chances just because I'm like maybe my initial impression was wrong. I need to go back and watch this movie and see how it actually is. And uh, we should uh, there's certain movies where I watch that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all good. It's it's okay to to not like something that's popular. In fact, that's my entire shtick on online. Ah, ah. <laughs> this is true. This is true. All right. Next question from one of our patrons, Lord Tim, who asks. He's asking, he, he asked a question whether there's an in-universe explanation given to um, Cersei not taking on the Baratheon last name. Oh. Is there one? <laughs> uh, no. I'm, str- I mean, I'm struggling to recall because, yeah, I think 
when I think of that question, I think of people on Tumblr attempting to explain this. So that suggests that there probably isn't a, a, an obvious in-universe one that I'm forgetting. Is there an obvious in-universe one that I'm forgetting? I, I, I've no, I don't remember any explanation besides... Because, I mean, like, like the, the counterexample is that, you know, Catelyn Stark becomes Catelyn Stark after being Catelyn Tully. Right. Uh, but Cersei doesn't adopt her her husband's uh, surname, the Baratheon surname. I mean, I think it's it's kind of speaks a little bit to the Lannister pride. Sure, uh, you know, you know her answer. pride is the thing that that Catelyn says to, to Ned in like Catelyn's second chapter in a Game of Thrones. Um, and uh, Chloe has a really good uh, uh, idea in here, saying they're royal and she's not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's definitely true. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. I think you know George is a. Uh, this is not exactly his, you know, what what he his his first and foremost. Like, you know, the reason Stannis and Renly aren't princes really is just because George was like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's why. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think also just like think think about reading the sentence Cersei Baratheon and just how weird that would feel. And maybe just yeah. George, like at, when he at, by the time the character was established in his mind, he was like, no, Cersei Baratheon, that sounds wrong. And when he was writing Catelyn, he was writing her in Winterfell, surrounded by the Starks, proud of House Stark. And so he just kind of wrote her as Catelyn Stark. And I think maybe maybe the character came first. Maybe this is a chicken or the egg thing, where it's like the way he was writing the character may have determined how they ended up being named. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I, for me, I just can't imagine saying Cersei Baratheon, like even just right? like saying it's wrong. it. Just like, yeah, it's just wrong. And like, She would never permit this. No, it's wrong ethically, and it's also just like it's wrong on my tongue. So it's like both both wrongs at the same time. So I think that's. Uh, but again, that's not like explained in universe. Uh, that's just uh, it's an out of universe type of explanation there. But I don't think that George really had a lot of. Uh, I don't know. I don't think he really like thought a lot about it until Agreed. like he's like. Go ahead. I was gonna say yeah, I think Chloe's has the best uh, in universe explanation, but otherwise I think it's just George. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Let's take one from from the crowd. A lot of we've got a lot, a lot of comments about favorite Coen Brothers movies. Natural. Um, well, there's no wrong answers. I mean, there's a couple wrong answers, I guess. Now that I say that out loud, but yeah, did I you mean, like Intolerable Cruelty? Um, I really wanted to because I like the cast, <laughs> but that's when we're like, I don't know. The tone felt a little on edge to me. The Lady Killers is like unwatchable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that one sucks. Uh, I like the Hudsucker Proxy. Okay, that's one of the lesser ones, but uh, that like community tone. But yeah, I mean, they just kept making masterpieces, so you can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. All right, Frank B. Yay, we were, uh, Hi, Frank. We were totally gossiping about before in pre-production. No, I'm kidding. We were just living like, what a time for Frank to be not online on, on Truly. these days. Truly. Uh, he asks, in honor of my sister's resplendent status graduation blanket, which you can see on the Nauticast uh, Slack, is excellent. It's amazing. And your sister did a fantastic job. He asks, what is the best of Song of Ice and Fire related gift you've received? You can't say each other and Emmett doesn't get to say Chloe. That's cheating. Is it though? Um, gosh. Well, I mean, technically, I guess a song of ice and fire. True. <laughs> that Did was you get a gift. As a gift? Uh, my mom gave me, like, I mean, I don't know, if gift, but she gave me her copy of a feast for crows, and she never got it back. And not, not, not a feast, actually, it was storm. Uh, she gave me a copy of a storm of swords and never got it back. So I guess that qualifies. <laughs> uh, and I went to, uh, went to Ice and Fire Con, uh, the last Ice and Fire Con. Uh, some people gave me some like some like booze infused like gummies shaped like wolves and dragons and stuff. Oh and I wow! Ate way too many of those and had to, and I was just knocked out for that first night. <laughs> Poor Chloe had to carry on and, and without me. So th- clearly, clearly, I think that. But no, like you know, um, 
I don't know, like, people are, like, I mean, that's one of the things I love about fandoms and conventions, people are always handing out cookies and, you know, little tchotchkes based around the Song of Ice and Fire thing, so all the, all those kind of are a tie for me, I always love that stuff. I, that, that's, yeah, I think it's, it's one of the cool things about the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, and because I've never really been involved in any other fandom besides the Song of Ice and Fire, I don't know how true this is for other fandoms, but I, I love the creativity of all of the people that are involved in it, that create artwork, that do jewelry, that do all sorts of wonderful things in the fandom. Um, so the, the thing that, that I value the most is, uh, I was never expecting this, but uh, but Mallory, our friend San Rixian, uh, last summer, uh, she just sent me a, a, without me, like any prompting or anything like that, uh, surprised me, she sent me a uh, calendar, a Song of Ice and Fire calendar with all of her artwork in it. And uh, she, a couple like coasters, actually, of like the Stark uh, wolf that she's drawn. So it's like really, uh, it's really meaningful to me. My that's wife is like, what, what, what is this? And I'm like, oh, that's from my friend Mallory. She's like, who's Mallory? She's like, I, I don't think I've actually ever met her, but she's great. She's uh, she's, <laughs> she's fantastic. And she sent me these uh, these gifts. And uh, um, that was really, really kind of uh, Mallory to do that. And, Mallory's uh, the best. Yeah, she sent us, Lee, I should have mentioned, Mallory sent us a Liana shirt or beautiful Liana shirt. Uh, we treasure that. Uh, uh, our friend McCall sent us a, a Catalan Stark did nothing wrong shirt. <laughs> That's always fun to have on around the house. So yeah, I mean that's that's a, a generosity. You can't 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 beat that. Yeah, that's that's another thing about the fandom. That's just the creativity. It's the generosity of like Absolutely. just giving your brain power over to people, lending your talent to other people as well. And you know, it's great. It's it's a, it's a wonderful place to be most of the time. And True. that's uh. It's and if we ever have talents, we'll be sure to share it back with you one of these days. Yeah, if, if, I, if I ever develop, you know, if I ever meet but, my but beyond beyond unearned self confidence, my primary talent. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take another one from the stands. SKNC asks, at Proquin, when you were first reading the books, what was the moment that really made you fall in love with them? Ooh, ooh, I know the answer to that one. When Blood Raven is showing Bran all the stuff that he shows him in his first oh, dream. Yeah. And then he's, he's specifically when he says, now you know my, you must fly. And Bran says, why? And Blood Raven whispers, because winter is coming. And I remember mm. going, fuck yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I am in. Because before that, you know, I was just reading along. It's like, oh, this is interesting. This is nice. I like, you know, this is world building some fun characters. But that was like, oh, I'm, ex- I'm, I'm excited now. Like, I, I absolutely must see how this pays off. Uh, so definitely, yeah, that was when I was first hooked uh, and for real, I think. Much as I love the first two books, I think Sam's uh, the zombie attack and Sam's first chapter in Storm of Swords is when I went. These are some of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. Not just I'm loving this, but the, this is near the top. Yeah. So for me, and that's a great answer. I think, uh, and and I think it did kind of take me by surprise when I was reading the books for the first time because because it, it was that same sort of mentality. Like, what is this? I don't I don't remember this being in, in Game of Thrones season one. This dream sure, sequence sure. and stuff like that. I'm like, and that's when I started to realize like that the stories were quite different from uh from how they uh came from a uh, came on screen versus what they were in the books right, right. um i i think the biggest thing for me if i remember correctly was because i had again and i keep telling the story but i've watched read the books after season two so i wasn't really spoiled on a lot of stuff uh, until we got to um I think the biggest thing for me was Jamie's chapters in *The Storm of Swords* and when he jumped to the bear pit, which is a sure. chapter that Steve Atwell just did today, his analysis yes. on today. Um, that was a chapter that when Jamie finished the chapter by saying "I dreamed of you," like I was like kind of just blown away because I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Like he's been like a super fucking jerk in the books and in the show at that point in time, and then all of a sudden he shows up and he's a bit different when he's actually as as a point of view, a prologue character, not prologue as a point of view character. 
Um, and then obviously the Red Wedding too was something that I uh, experienced without having watched it and not knowing it was coming either. Um, yeah, I'll tell the story. Uh, it's, it's kind of a dumb story, but uh, oh, so I, well, I was going on a on a date with uh, someone who was um <clears throat> was not my wife. Um, we weren't married at the time; we weren't dating or anything like that. So I was I was on I was dating. It's not a it's not a weird. We get off. it. You're going to hell, Jeff. Carry on. No, I so I, I um I came out of a uh, to a date. I was listening to the audiobooks. And I was driving in Baltimore City as I was living there at the time. And uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, the drums start pounding. You know, like this chapter's like, oh, this is another Catelyn chapter where mm-hmm. we're going to find out that Rob is going to be okay. Raining. And mm-hmm. Edmure is there. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're getting married. Another marriage chapter. Nothing bad happens in weddings and a song of ice and fire. And then the drums start pounding. And then, like, Walter Frey starts. And then everyone starts, like, dying. And I was, like, just really, like, uh, upset about it. But I kept like circling the block because the restaurant was like in this one place. So I was just like driving around, waiting to the end of the chapter. And when like pulled uh, pulled Ned's uh, cat's cat's hair and said, not, "You know, not my hair. Ned loves my hair." Mm-hmm. I just was like, "Oh my god!" I had the worst date of my entire life. Anyways, <laughs> it turns out I did not marry that person. Um, as it turns out, um, well, turn that was George just intervening to make sure you ended up with Tina. You know, that that's was just, right. That was, yeah, that was just the holy touch right there. I was right. The voice of God or Androida Trees there preventing me from uh, yeah making the wrong decision. <laughs> that's but, good uh, works. Oh man, yeah. So that was that was that's that's my that's my red wedding story. Um, but I also remember Stan and Stan and Stan being like one of those moments yeah. that just kind of like took me. By that was a huge surprise. deal. Because yeah. I remember being just really surprised in both character and plot terms. Like character terms, oh, Stannis is doing you know something besides grumbling. Right. And plot terms, like whoa, I never expected. Like the whole Stannis plot is in the north now. Like that's right. still just like a wild, ambitious move. You know, that's it's just a, completely, completely changes the map. Yeah, exactly. Great twist. And I can't wait till we get to that chapter in a Storm of Swords mm-hmm. and about probably two, two and a half years or so from now. Yeah, that might be my favorite John chapter, full stop, because that's also all the best man stuff is also yep. in that in that same chapter. It's great. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, let me turn to Patreon real quick and pull a question from there. Alex S. asks, I understand that both of you are aspiring writers in your own right, so I wanted to know whether there are any techniques or aspects of George's writing you take inspiration from when crafting your own stories and why. Alternatively, it would be really interesting for you guys to discuss whether or not there are aspects of his writing that you deliberately tried not to emulate. Can't make the live cast tonight, different time zone and all, but looking forward to listening to the episode when it's up. Stay safe and keep up the excellent work. Well, thank you, Alex, for the kind words. And uh, yeah, I'll turn the question over to you first. Are there inspirations you take from George? The, he, he, as we've said a couple times recently, he's really good at the in medias res opening to a chapter. And that mm-hmm. is something that is something I imitate to the extent that I probably should cut back on it. Um, <laughs> you know, that I could, you know, if it's, it's, uh, this is again a problem of mine when I'm writing. Like if I, if I like a technique, I kind of tend to over abuse it and then it loses its impact. So I gotta, I gotta, gotta kind of shuffle the deck on that one. But that's, that's something that I think is really powerful because I, I really don't like starting chapters with just like, now the character is here and they're walking right. into a place like you know you want to start with something you want to make the reader go wait what bang and then you fill them in exactly and that's the art of it and I love doing that um, in terms of to avoid um, I mean the sex scenes uh, I mean <laughs> just specifically trying like the, the the way in which he tries to make them erotic, I think, is something I try to avoid. I've, I've only got one sex scene in my book, uh, and I've rewritten it like a bunch of different times because I'm trying to get it right. But um, I'm gonna have to have you read that one live for one of these live casts. Hundred percent. But uh, yeah, his, I don't. You know, I think the the only scene 
I think the, the John Egret relationship is very sweet and romantic, but I maintain the only sex scene in A Song of Ice and Fire that is erotic is Asha and Carl. Mm-hmm. And that's very specifically because he's actively, clearly pushing his comfort zone, both in right. terms of how that sex scene starts and then where he takes it to. And I, I you know, that I like, but. Um, no, I think to yeah, be fair to George, I, yeah, yeah for like some of the sex scenes, like some of the, some of the stuff that people like criticize George about is like in, some of it is like intentionally bad, uh, like the sure, Cersei, trying to reflect their perspective, the mirror, mirror swamp stuff and things like that is like intentionally supposed to be like really uncomfortable and really like hard to read because George is trying to communicate something about Cersei's psychology oh, that yeah. he felt like he could do in this interesting way, and I think it was interesting. I think it's really well written. I think like Sam will seen about the, you know, the tall pink mask or whatever that's, is that what he calls it? Tall pink mask. Fat pink mask. Fat pink mask. There you go. It's talking, it's, it's speaking to um, Samuel, Samuel Tarley's character. And oh, I'll, yeah. even, that's and I'll fine. even, I'll even defend one of the worst sex scenes, I think, into all of the book, which is the um, Arizokart scene. Um, that's the prime offender in my book. Yeah. George was, and maybe he didn't do it well, but I think he was attempting to communicate how a virgin dude like, Aries Ocard, who is very definitely a virgin, like he he tries to listen sure. to Ariane, is attempting to evaluate a, a, a sexualized woman in, in this story where he's always been exposed to people who are not that way towards him. Oh yeah, no, I I don't I don't think there's a, a, like a lack of intention behind those things. I think, but if you add all those together, what they cumulatively amount to is an ex, is never actually having to engage with sex True. in a way that is direct and earnest and trying to be erotic. Because I really think the only time you really just try to do that is Asha and Carl. Because if your POV doesn't know what they're doing or is a villain or is just clueless, well, then that means you just get to write the sex scene like a 13-year-old would. And the fact that you're doing it in scare quotes, I, I, I think that's totally fine, but I th- that's something I'm trying and maybe will succeed at getting away from. As I think, I you know... I I think er, er, eroticism can be difficult territory uh, to tip your toe in as a writer if it's not something if it's not your what I'm saying is is if eroticism isn't your your primary mode it can be difficult for it to be your secondary mode I think that's something a lot of writers struggle with and that's something I'm trying to actively address in that way. Agreed. Um, for for me, like the ways that I've been inspired by George, uh, I, I don't outline my books. I just kind of mm-hmm. I kind of. I've adopted just not not by not inspired by George, but I'm kind of a gardener in terms of writing style. So I kind of let the story develop. I have some basic ideas of where I want the story to go to, and then I let the story come to me and feel like that it grows organically through the process of writing the story. So uh, I, I didn't know that's what I was doing when I first started writing the Cautioner's Tale, Book of a Generation. But mm-hmm. it was a uh, but it ended up being how George has written a Song of Ice and Fire, as you guys can find out with the Ironborn tomorrow, um, which is just. Um, but that's that's kind of what I think um, in terms of like what inspiration I take away from 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 George in terms of things right. I'm not inspired by George on. <sighs> I'm trying to think if there's like anything I've been like consciously been like no I'm not going to write this because I don't think this is a good way that, that a song by Sinfire is written um I don't know I don't have a good answer I'll, I'll think about, about it uh, yeah yeah I mean there's you know obviously there's just there's just interests he might have that we don't share it's not necessarily him doing something bad it just might not be you know our, our, our particular wheelhouse Right. And someone asked how many sex scenes are in the Cautioner's Tale. Um, yeah, that's a question. There, there's a fair amount. Um, Dark times for the characters. <laughs> yeah, so you guys are going to, I'm going to, you guys will have to suffer through those, I'm afraid. Um, but they are attempting to communicate story things uh, about the characters in the, in the story. So that's why I've, I've tried to write, write the, those sex scenes in that venue. And I think that any, any scene, regardless of whether it's a sex scene, a communication, a, a talking scene, 
or a, whatever kind of scene you're supposed to be doing is supposed to be reflecting something about the characters. And I think that's ultimately the takeaway that I get from A Song of Ice and Fire of sure. how to write a story, like write a story about, you know, journeying from point A to point B. It's not necessarily about the journey itself. It's about what happens to the characters along the journey and how they grow or devolve in the story itself. So that's that's kind of what I think. That's very well said, sir. Thank you. Everybody's getting very animated in the chats about our, I was talking about sex scenes we're writing in our books. So uh, Hannah asks, hey there, probably won't be able to make the cast tomorrow. It'll be work hours and I have an accursed meeting schedule. However, my question is thinking back to when you first read the books or when you were rereading for pleasure, are there certain characters or arcs that blow you away and you find particularly engrossing? On the flip side, are there chapters or arcs that you are tempted to skip? Well, I mean, we've covered this, you know, so extensively in the first couple books. So thinking ahead to when I, you know, reread the ones that are coming... Um, in in Storm of Swords, the last couple John chapters are just so so rich. Well, you know when he's dealing with Mance, and then Stannis's army shows up, and then that that conversation he has with Stannis, like it, like it's beyond any relationship to Stannis as a character. Like every line in their first conversation is just just dripping with meaning and nuance and ambiguity. Like I could I could re reread the the John Stannis dialogue scenes forever. They're just they're just perfect. Uh, stuff I'm tempted to skip. Uh, some of the early King's Landing stuff in A Storm of Swords. Mm. Here's the thing about like King's Landing and Storm is this interesting experiment where in all the other books you have like this POV at the center of power in King's Landing, and you're seeing everything through what they're doing and engaging with. It's Ned, it's Tyrion, it's Cersei, it's it's Kevon a little bit at the end of Dance. Well, with Storm, the person doing all that is Tywin. And he's not a POV, and you can't know what he's up to because what he's up to is the Red Wedding. And we're not allowed to know about that until it happens. So you have this structure where our POVs, Tyrion and Sansa, are kind of both on the outside of power looking in for the first part of that book. And I get why that is, but it's it's not super, like, momentum-driven. So, like, when I read about, like, Tyrion's exploring who Mandon Moore was working for, what Simon Silvertongue was up for, I'm like, this is, this is marking time until yeah. the shit starts. So that that's that stuff is not the most compelling for me. What about you? I think for me, the stuff I find really really compelling, um, and I, just because I've been doing a lot of reading on this, is the the Asha and Theon chapters that close out of Dance with Dragons, uh, and the John chapters that close out of Dance with Dragons too, especially the final John chapter. That stuff I find just deeply rich, compelling, emotional. It mm. really speaks to the full range of human emotions that goes on with these 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 chapters. And then also like really, you know, the Asha's chapters are filled with Stannis and you know, which is also really, really good. Of and course. I love the way the way love the way the Wayward Bride ends and concludes with Asha hearing trumpets and she's like, mm. that's not right. And <laughs> then she, yep. she has a dream and she sees like a fiery stag and that's boom, chapter end. I'm like and it always just like brings like chills up my spine. So I absolutely love that uh the, the way that George does that. Yes. Um, things, think things I, I, I don't like as much, I think, is um, a lot of the Arya stuff early in A Clash of Kings. We did the sure. three chapters in one episode, and we did, what, about an hour and 15 minutes on three chapters, which is a little bit rare for us. Not sure. to say there's, they're unimportant or there's not stuff to draw out of them, but they all, they do kind of drag a bit. And then Arya's early chapters in A Storm of Swords are also that way, where you're just kind of going from the journey from um, from Harrenhal up to, up to the twins eventually. And that does kind of go against what I was just saying about how it's all about the journey is all about re- reflecting character beats and, and motions. But I feel like a lot of what George did early in A Storm of Swords for Arya's story in particular was he was just trying to get a character from point A to point B when he really could have started the story but without really like kind of boosting and, and building up who Arya was and what it means to her to be on the road again. He could have started Arya's story in Arya's second chapter 
and kind of progressed from there. He really actually could have started with when they encountered Lem Lemon Cloak and uh, on the road out there. But yeah, I'm with you there. You know, that's 20 years ago at this point, so nothing's really going to change that way. So those are like okay. kind of the chapters I tend to. I never skip them, but I do kind of like skim them a little bit. All right, Catlin K asks, I just read your, to you, Emmett, I just read your Eldritch Apocalypse essay. In addition to Lovecraftian themes in The Forsaken, do you, or Jeff, see overtly religious allusions to Aaron's point of view, specifically of Jonah 2? So if I'm not mistaken, Jonah 2 is the uh, story where uh, Jonah gets is in the belly of the whale, and uh, then he arrives in Nineveh right after that, because he tries to sail away from his prophetic journey, uh, tries to flee from God and flee from his... Uh, message of attempting to redeem the city of Nineveh and the Assyrians because they are the sworn enemies of of the Judeans and during that time period. But God brings it back via a storm. He gets swept overboard in the storm and then he ends up in the belly of a whale and the whale vomits him out on the shore right in front of Nineveh, which I'm not sure about the geography of that because I'm not mistaken. Nineveh is like in Iraq right now, present day Iraq and the Mesopotamian. So regardless. Story doesn't check out. Bible canceled. (laughs) Uh, so uh, the, the question goes to you. So do you th- what do you see like biblical or religious allusions to that story beyond the Lovecraftian themes of it? Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the Forsaken opens with it was always midnight in the belly of the beast. So that very much that's that sensation of being in the belly of a whale. That's that so many stories have borrowed from, I think, is very present with Aaron. I think there's also uh, a lot of people, including Stephen Atwell, have pointed out there's the structure of Job in Aaron's story in the Forsaken when he's he's questioning God and demanding things of him. But but God is not there. So the question becomes is this faith become uh, foolish when God does not seem to answer or does become more powerful because it shows you, you know, you're sticking to it even through the, the strictest of tests and maybe the silence is your answer as Euron would have it. But uh, certainly I think that's what makes uh, the Ironborn stuff deeper than, than just just a horror show starring Euron. It's this entire worldview that Euron has built up in defense against Euron and that Euron is now challenging and it makes for a, a really good kind of contact point. In terms of, because you know, a character like Euron, it's easy for him just to kind of f- float free in the atmosphere. You know, George hmm. needs these grounding points, these, these contact points with humanity, and I think religion is what he uses to, to to make that work. So I think it's it's a it's kind of interesting thing with Dampere where you have stories like Jonah and Job, but in a Lovecraftian context. It's if George is saying like, here, I used to believe in these stories too. I am I am a lapsed Catholic. That now it's that I've set the world of the Bible adrift in the world of Lovecraft. You know, the Bible is sinking into the ocean. Like, that's what we're seeing with Aaron <laughs> Dampere's chapters. It's this one kind of religious story being challenged by another. And I think, yeah, I think it's, that's, that's, that's a great point of how George, and George has done this a lot with history, too, where he kind of intermixes, like, Wars of the Roses and the Crusades and the 60s protest movement and the Vietnam War all into kind of one kind of narrative, which makes it kind of really interesting when it comes to, to narrative itself. In terms of additional religious illusions, we will talk about, I think we will talk about this either in part two or three of the, of the Forsaken, but there is a, uh, our friend Eliana from the Girls Gone Canon podcast had a wonderful essay several years ago after the Forsaken came out, talking about how Euron's interactions with Aaron Dampere in the Forsaken are very reminiscent of Satan's temptations of Jesus when he's out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights because he comes uh, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Euron comes to Aaron Dampere three times with three different temptations, and Jesus come, excuse me, Satan comes to Jesus three times with three different temptations, bow down before me and worship yeah. me, which is something that Euron says to, to Aaron, and I will grant you all of the kingdoms of the earth, and I will grant you food and different types of temptations. I'm, I'm, I need to get back into my Bible reading, is what I'm trying to say. No, that's a great point. It kind of comes to him, his form is evolving, like, oh, now his eye patch has changed color. Now he's got a different crown on. It's, it's that, yeah, like he's he's a different form of temptation, that threefold temptation that, of course, 
uh, storytellers again have have borrowed from constantly and George's you know for part of me feels like with Euron that like George is trying to drag all these like tropes back to their essence you know what I mean like he's trying to say with Euron like here here's all of them here's right. all of them in one guy and like you know this is like this is this is the kind of guy we've been telling each other stories about since forever and now here he is the com- my complete full version of him mm-hmm. love it I'm, I'm so excited to get into the later parts of, of the Forsaken which is gonna it's be, gonna so be great fun. buddy absolutely all right. The Blood of the Podcast, which is an excellent podcast you guys should all be listening to, asked this question about 15 times. Yes, what is your favorite cereal? Huh. That's a good question. Um, you don't have an immediate answer? No, I don't. I have to think about it because I don't, I mean, I don't really eat it anymore. Um, but when <laughs> I was a kid, uh, I loved Golden Grams a lot. Those were delicious. I remember I mean, enjoying those. The king of cereals is Cinnamon Toast Crunch. That is objectively true. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. That's true. Is the best, not just my favorite cereal. It is the objectively best cereal. Okay, oh, but that's, what's the difference between cinnamon toast crunch and golden grams? Really, there's I no can, cinnamon sugar in golden grams. That's true. It's honey, isn't it? it all right, is. all right. I can see the touch point. of honey. It's a touch of honey. <laughs> a touch of honey. It sounds like a ripoff. Uh, I mean, that's, you can see it was a very honey. Yeah. Okay. No, that's fine. You win. You win. Well, I can I, see. Go, I, I enjoyed golden grams back then. There was a time a dark time in my life when I was about 13 years old where Golden Grams was my favorite cereal for about a month but I think I ate it so much that I just grew to But then you it. evolved. Well then there's like the ones that just aren't even like like Cookie Crisp. Who are you kidding with that? It's not cereal. <laughs> That's just your, you know, the cereal world is on this hair's breadth between breakfast and dessert and Cookie Crisp is like, no, you're ripping the curtain. You're showing everyone what this is. You can't do that. It's like all the coffees too. They sell at like uh, Starbucks that are not really coffees. They're more like Yeah, again, so. you're exposing what the whole industry is, guys. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great question from I'm going to forget who it was here but asked who is our favorite non-Song of Ice and Fire villain hmm favorite non-Song of Ice and Fire villain come on you know this one we did a whole episode about this book and movie that's the true Zack Snyder masterpiece that's true uh, you know it's hard to beat Ozymandias as, as, mm-hmm. as the choice Adrian Veidt Adrian Veidt is, is a really really excellent choice as far as an overall villain goes yeah there, there, might, there might be villains who have scared me more which is what I was thinking about but I think as far as a complete full character uh, Adrian Veidt as you realize you know exactly how you know the, the, the ubermensch ideal has just like corrupted until it's like oh you don't even realize how messed up like what the, when he calls the comedian a Nazi it's like he's right but <laughs> you do realize you're describing yourself too right pal yeah so yep. that's hard to beat yeah I think Adrian Veidt's a really really good one um, I mean there's Morgan Le Fay like in, in classical literature I think is an excellent sure. villain uh, in the Arthurian series, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of uh, really good ones that are that are out there. I just like I just keep wanting to go to a Song of Ice and Fire villains because I just feel like I'm so deep in that. But in terms of like um, sheer fear, like you know, something like Bob from Twin Peaks, like he's not a character, but like you know, the, whenever the sight of him flashes on screen, I go, oh god, no. So mm-hmm. you know, him for that. But like yeah, in terms of like you know, oh, I see how I could become that person. That's horrifying. That's Adrian yep. Bite. Absolutely. Brad asks, what impact will Song of Ice and Fire and George R. Barton have on literature if George nails the next two books? Well, I will not totally disagree with this premise, but I will say that George has already had a massive impact on literature and fiction with just the five published books and the novellas and the histories as well to the side. But what do you think will be the impact of a Song of Ice and Fire and George R. Barton on literature? I don't know. I mean, because that's the thing. Like these books, especially as they exist now, are deeply unfashionable. 
and I don't say that as a critique of you know any one trend in particular, but they're they're just they're going to feel out of place in a lot of ways, and that might mean that might lessen their impact, and that might increase their impact. You know, I'm not I'm I'm not sure. I'm um I I am curious to see how the stylistic parts of it are trickle down to creators who are not afflicted with George's gigantism. You know what I mean? I'm, hmm. I'm curious to see, because, you know, my my f- favorite authors are, are people like like Thomas Pynchon and James Joyce and writers who go on and on and on and on and on forever. But in my own writing, I, I, I try to draw from, like, their, their wordplay and their power of language and try to do it in slightly a more compact frame. And hmm. I wonder if that might be George's influence. I think that's a really good question. A really good answer, rather. Um, and it's a really good question, too. I'll talk about the practicality piece of it. I mean, we, you could talk about the impact that Song of Ice and Fire has had on, on literature, just looking at the staggering influence that it's had in just pop culture. Game of Thrones remains, despite what people are saying online, one of the most influential, if not the most influential series of the 2010s. And I think that legacy is going to continue on, at least for for a long, long time. Uh, in terms of practicality, and this is something that I've heard along the way from different writer folks, there has been... One of the drawbacks for, for A Song of Ice and Fire and Georgia Bard and, the, and the, these books taking a very long time to come out is that there's been a lot of talk about whether book agents and publishing houses are taking on long form fantasy series because the George R. R. Martin effect. Are we going to actually get a finished series? Are, is this worth investing my time in if it's going to take five, six, seven, nine, ten, twelve years for each book to come out? Um, and that's not just George R. R. Martin's fault. That's also Patrick Rothfuss, whose third book in his trilogy is I think was the, the second book was published when Dance of Dragons was published. So the, the third book has taken forever apparently to write. So I think that's that's the aspect of um, for practically for authors mm-hmm. that does have, have an impact. So a lot of. Yeah, that's a good point for sure. A lot of agents and a lot of publishing houses are looking for more compact books like one book, just one, just literally one book. You give me one book and we'll be fine or for established authors. So it's kind of hard for new authors to kind of get up and running in terms of the fantasy and science fiction genres. So I think that's a um, that's a practical impact. I think we can talk more about the long term influence that it will have on literature. One of the things I, th- I think is interesting. Um, we've talked about this a little bit before. I know that others are, are more invested in this topic. But when George was writing, started writing the Song of Ice and Fire, he was writing against a lot of bad fantasy that was written, especially in the 1980s, ripoffs of Tolkien and ripoffs of Conan the Barbarian, the Robert E. Howard stuff, and kind of these like Dark Lords, heroes muscled like a maiden's fantasy kind of running running up. And so George is running against that trope. So how much of an influence does that have in 2020 when we don't really see that a lot in fantasy and science fiction writing? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think the legacy will live beyond that, but I think that George effectively put that genre, that bad genre to death. And now he's still kind of writing with that mentality of the 1990s. Well, all these plot points are figured out in the 1990s, and that's had a uh, controversial impact when some of these plot points were portrayed in season eight of Game of Thrones. So I think it's going to be interesting um, to see what it's actually going to look like in the next five, ten years when George finishes this series, which I still believe he's going to do. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to think about because it's like that's the that's the kind of the two parts of the reputation of A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones because when you talk about it as like, you know, deconstructing a stale genre in the 90s. It's like, well, it's not Scream, though, right? Like, it's not like a giant <laughs> joke. Like, that's not the tone of it. So that's right. what has always made this this book series so weird. It's that, on the one hand, it's 
it is definitely like you know s- smearing a lot of stuff in your face in that regard and trying to be a kind of a jarring reading experience but it also has is such a it also feels like like naive and romantic at a lot of parts compared to a lot of kind of George's imitators and a lot of where kind of the tone of a lot of fiction is now. So in some ways, it's it's caught. It's I think pop culture is caught up to aspects of his work, but I think it's caught up to the aspects of his work that were the least interesting and were designed to age hmm. the least well. Like they caught up to the tip of the spear, not what he was doing afterwards. I agree that it, that it's, it's a serious work. It's not just a parody of bad fantasy. It is a uh, a loving tribute, I would say, in, in, mm-hmm. in some senses, as well as revolutionary in other senses. So that's uh, that yeah, makes that's it a, well put. I like that. Yeah, makes it interesting. All right, take one from Patreon here. Teenage Gumshoe asks, "Hi guys, I'm going to try and make the live cast, but I know there's a chance I will not. My question is, do you think there is hope for Ariane? If Danny fights the others before heading down to King's Landing, perhaps she'll have time to leap before the kaboom." <laughs> Even if she does die on a character level, what do you think her journey will be? I've only seen plot points marry Aegon and die without much thought to her character journey. Interesting question. Teenage Gumshoe. Enjoy it. What do you think? What do you think is Arianne's purpose and is she going to survive the series? I do not think she's going to survive the series. I think that we've said this before and uh, the folks at Radio Westeros and much of other people have said this before that George seems to have retroactively realized Dorne should be a bigger deal than it is. <laughs> In part for issues, I think, of representation, but also because, like, they're really huge in the backstory and they're really distinct culturally from the rest of Westeros. But I think in the initial outline and up to a point in the executed story, they were just kind of sitting there. And he was, and then Feast and Dance, you can tell, especially given that Oberyn, I think, was way more successful a character than he originally thought he was going to be, that he started spinning these characters out into larger and, and larger environments. And I really like that stuff a lot. I really like the Duran Ariane relationship. I obviously really like Quentin's chapters. But I, I think it is always good to pull back a bit on how central these characters really are to the story and how much of a role they're really going to have to play on Endgame. So I do think Ariane, yeah, is, is, is going out. I think pretty much all the Dornish characters, with a couple of exceptions, I think are going to be tied to the sinking ship that is Young Grift. I think in terms of <laughs> Ariane's own personal journey, I think it's part of this, this larger tragedy within House Martell about the failure to communicate with one another and how the sins and, and failures of the older generation, how the losses of Ely and her children have impacted a generation that never knew her. Like, Quentin never thinks about Elia once because he never met her, but that's why he's supposedly doing all this. And Ariane just has the one memory of holding uh, her little niece, and that's it. But for the older generation, that's what it's entirely about, and they've kind of forced the younger generation through this. So Ariane's part in that, I think, and you really see this in the released Winds chapters is is the, 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 the tragedy of her thinking that Quentin is out to usurp her and is coming back to get her birthright when really, A, he's dead, and B, he never had any interest in it anyway. And so for me, I think that Ariane's journey is leading like Quentin's to a moment of realization of, of oh, of, oh no, this was, I, you know, this, this was a, a journey towards my doom and I ended up contributing to it. I think one thing that I, you know, I think... When we talk about like things being character-centric, as you were saying about you know, about the cautioner's tale, I think one thing we can sometimes forget as we you know as we filter everything through character and character is king is that what a character means is different in different genres, and I think you know George is heavily influenced by the horror genre, and something that a character means in a horror context is often one dreadful moment of realization, and often that's it. Like the end of the Blair Witch Project 
when you know she's going down the stairs with the camera and she sees the guy standing in the corner and she screams as violently as you've ever heard a person scream because just in that moment she realizes what this has all been and what it's all been leading to and it's about to kill her too and it does and I kind of think that's what Ariane's story is which is 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 very bleak but I, that's the thing I don't you know we when we say you know filter everything through character character is king it's not that everyone has a hero's journey character arc it's you know it's that you you know whatever genre you're working with and you should suffuse the character and the fabric of that genre and I think ultimately both Ariana and Quentin are in horror stories without realizing it that's a good way of putting it I've never heard uh, the, uh, this idea that Quentin and Ariana are in, are in horror stories I always figured they were just in tragic stories but adding that horror element just gives it a well yeah I mean that's a that's a great point I think you know tragedy and horror those those lines can blur I think George has the structure of tragedy but his his imagery often is very very specifically. I think, uh, drawn from his horror writing. I gotcha. Yeah, I think that Ariane does, doesn't make it ultimately. Um, I, I think, like, uh, there's an aspect you were, you were hitting on, and there's this line, this is a really great line from Tyrion's 10th or 11th chapter in The Storm of Swords, where he talks about, after he's hearing Oberyn talking about Elia, and he's like, we're all just, like, dancing on the strings of our, our parents, and our children will dance on our strings thereafter. So we get to visit that idea of vengeance on the next generation, the next generation, and the next generation until it stops. And then, you know, that, that famous conversation between Jamie and, um, is it, is it Hoster Blackwood? The one boy he takes as a, a page or a squire after he takes, uh, Raven Tree Hall, where he talks about, like, how does this end? And he's like, well, it ends when we just, like, massacre the shit out of each other. That apparently is, is Jamie's perspective after he mm. recounts, like, the reigns of Caspian and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's great. It's all that's good really stuff. That's really good. All right. I got to get to this question because, uh, our, our friend Lo, uh, yes. is, has to sign Yay. off here. Saying, not sure if I'll make the live cast, but in case I don't, here's a question. Sorella Sand, what's up with them? What game are they playing? What's their long-term goal? What is their future? A bit of a big question, but Sorella really fascinates me. Yes, Sorella, so I, when I said uh, most of the Dornish characters uh, are probably doomed. Sorella, I think, is hopefully an exception. She's out She's out of the kind of King's Landing, Young Griff disaster area that the rest are in. Of course, she's in Old Town, and Old Town is not exactly have an optimistic future because Euron is coming to town. Uh, but you know, the, the way Sorella is introduced in Feast, you can tell she's one of those characters George really, really loves and, you know, thinks is great. And she seems to have a really great mindset and she's helping Sam out. And, uh, you know, she seems to just want nothing to do with the Game of Thrones at all that all the rest of the Dornish folks are involved in. So that makes me think, huh, maybe George is setting her up to play some important role. Maybe she'll be in charge of Dorne, maybe not. But of, of the Dornish main cast, she's the one I have, I have hopes surviving, in part because I just really like her, too. She seems she seems cool. She does seem cool. And I, I think, too, I hope she makes it out with Sam. I hope she becomes like a partner to Sam in the same way that Sam was a partner to to John in, in a Game of Thrones. Yes. And, yes. And, a, and a Clash of Kings. It seems like a good pairing for them to, to be together for the story going forward. I think it makes the story richer. I think it also integrates uh, Dorne in a way, in an interesting way in the story where we've only gotten Dorne Martell. Ariane Martell and Quentin Martell's storylines basically so far to have Sorella's storyline then come in with Sam brings a whole new perspective to the Dornish plotline in A Song of Ice and Fire. So it helps to uh, kind of flesh out the Dornish storyline in an interesting direction because, I mean, she seems like the most level headed person among the Sand Snakes, right? She sure. seems actually invested in education and in learning and also is, seems very uh, whip smart and uh, has a has a lot of a exactly. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes of her in the Winds of Winter. Because they all got parts of Oberyn, right? You know, they all got pieces. That's the Sand Snakes. They all looked. They all looked to dead, and they all decided, "Nah, that's the facet of him that I care about." So I'm going to pretend that he was only ever that. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, like, you know, like everyone does with, with uh, you know, versions of their parents or people they look up to. That's what I think is int- interesting about the Sand Snakes. And Sorella got Oberyn's bookish side because he went to the <laughs> Citadel for a while before he got bored and moved on because Oberyn was a dilettante. And that's, you know, all his kids are committed to, you know, an aspect of life that he kind of flitted through. And Sorella's committed to the intellectual aspect. So I, I hope she lasts. But again, I feel like... She feels like she was written in part just for that purpose. Like George went, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, I, uh, maybe of all the sea of faces I have at the end, one of them doesn't have to be white. Maybe I should come up with a Dornish character who actually has a chance of surviving and seems like she right. has some skills to contribute. Her name is, uh, let's go with Sorella. And, right. You know, I, I wish those characters were there from the beginning, but that is a, a valuable recognition on his part if that is indeed what happened. So it's fine. I agree. Absolutely agree. SKNC asks, do you believe in death of the author or do you think authorial intent matters? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase the question for you. When people read your story, do they do you want them <laughs> yeah. to come out, come away with your perspective on the story and themes or do you want them to develop their own in the story? I think the reader matters more than the author. That's that's ultimately my takeaway. I think reducing the author to, to nothingness, I think... Like, there's, that, there's this silliness going around, like, you know, like, let's all pretend that Maggie Simpson wrote Harry Potter. No, I'm sorry, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter. <laughs> and while there's plenty of things in Harry Potter I enjoy, J.K. Rowling's bullshit politics are also all over those books. And you, you, you cannot pretend that's not the case. You just have to engage with them in that mindset. But, you know, but also the people who are saying, you know, hey, trans kids who love Harry Potter, those books belong to you, not J.K. Rowling. I think that's also correct. I think both are true, and I think it... I think you have to look at arguments made using both of those and see why those arguments are being made, you know, and see see what perfect purpose is being served. Not necessarily say everyone's conning you and scamming you or something, but just, you know, when when do people like thinking about the author and when do they not? And isn't that interesting? And, you know, for, for my part, yeah, I think we should center the reader experience, but I think it is always good by the reader experience to be informed by knowledge about the author. That doesn't have to change what the reader takes away from, but I think I think the, the reader experience is less informed without without knowledge about the author. It doesn't even have to be empathy with the author. It doesn't even have to be getting to the author's shoes. Just like know things like where were they born? You know, who, what, what kind of, what religion were they? What was happening politically around them? You know, just that, that I think that, I think that is only useful. Yeah. I, I think some of the distinction, you're highlighting some of the issues with like the distinction that it has to be like one way or the other. And, and I think it, it can be both at the same time. I think that people can, if you're reading a song of ice and fire, you should see George's themes as, as they are mostly, anti-war not fully but mostly aspects of the issues of vengeance versus justice and how we delineate those two and how hard it is and a lot of what George has talked about and especially in, in interviews that go beyond the books is how he's not necessarily wanting to pose solutions as much as posing questions in in a song of ice and fire so to be that reads like at least Martin wants a little bit more death of the author potentially, but also he has some generalized ideas of what he wants the story to be about. And he has, of course, has his own themes that he imbues into the story, which are flowing from himself and from his experiences in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and the 2000s, of course. You can't read A Song of Ice and Fire and not see, especially in the later books, a lot of allusions to current events as well as historical events. Um, and we were covering Fever Dream in our, our Patreon podcast, and you can't see issues of 
racism and slavery and the issues of what it meant to be a white and black American in the 1850s and not see George's imprint on that and how he is writing Abner Marsh in a very interesting way of having this kind of journey where he starts the story as being quite racist if you if you take a look at what his viewpoints of of black americans and his viewpoint of slavery itself but by the end of the story there is a involvement there has been character advancement for abner marsh where he is no longer thinking that way and starts to recognize black americans as being human beings as being friends his friend toby who was one of the, the cooks aboard the the fever dream has a really wonderful kind of minor you know story nested within the story of fever dream itself so it's a it's a cool way of, of doing it death of the author is is important i i think uh I think for my book, I, I, I don't want people to kind of be death of the author on it for reasons that if you've read my story, you might understand a little bit better. But because uh, I don't want people to come away thinking that the main character of my story, like is living the life and this, this, the life that he's living is worth the one that you should be living too. It's supposed to be a cautionary tale. Right? Get it? The cautioner's <laughs> tale. <laughs> right. It's supposed to be uh, a story that's supposed to be like. Take a look at what this this character is experiencing, which is based on some of what I experienced in my own life, and walk away from that sort of lifestyle. But we'll do one from Patreon. Uh, Guilty Undertaker asks, uh, for Jeff, as a veteran, which movies slash other pieces of popular media do you think best capture what it's like to serve in the armed forces? Which ones get the most wrong? And which do you like anyway, despite or because of how much they screw up? Okay, I can answer the first one really conclusively. Um, there's a... Uh, a movie that you might have heard of called Transformers, uh, <laughs> done by Michael Bay, who's an auteur director, uh, who actually think is he is objectively that he is objectively that. I think he has interesting ways of communicating whatever it is he's trying to communicate. <laughs> exactly right, and that's all an auteur is. They don't have to be good; they just have to be distinct. So yes, keep going. Exactly, and I, you know, as much as it's like absolutely silly and ridiculous, I love that scene where like they're. The, those Air Force commandos apparently are, are fighting the, the one transport Scorpionics or whatnot in the middle of the first movie. Um, you know, I see, as, as I've told people in the past, uh, when I was going to the gym, I would put that on my phone on YouTube and I would just watch the scene. I was just kind of like running on the treadmill because it's so inspirational and you have the music going, beating, beating strong and everything like that. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was, I just thought it was really good, even though it's like completely fucking inaccurate. Like uh, when you, Bring the rain. I'm like, yeah, that's that's not it's not a command you would you would utter over the radio to call in an airstrike. I, just just putting just putting that out there. Propaganda is very effective. It's true. It's extremely. And that's and that's, that's where that's where Michael Bay's his aesthetic sensibility, I think, is is truly lies as propaganda. I'm I'm glad he is. I'm just very glad he passively loves the military as much as he does. I'm glad. I'm just. I'm glad he's not like actively embedded the way he kind of wants to be. I'm glad he's yeah. just lazy enough that he just kind of like makes these kind of ads in the form of movies. But yeah, no, I you know yeah. that's. My, I mean, Michael Bay. You know, he gets his stuff gets me pumped up, even as I know it's ridiculous that you know the swooping shot from Bad Boys that everyone always yeah, uses. I love that shot. It works. It works. It's in Hot Fuzz for a reason. It's effective. Yeah, I mean, Michael Bay has some of it. He has two movies in the Criterion Collection, too. So, I mean, like, at some objective level, Michael Bay He's is- not unskilled. It's just his actual aesthetic. That's, that's the, you know, it's, it's you know, it's what... He, you know, he knows how to do all the things. It's just, as you said, what it is he's actually trying to communicate. That's just, that's the right. thing that, that, you know. Anyway, anyway. Anyways, in terms of, like, ones that are, like, accurate... Yes. I mean, here's the thing, like... When you're like depicting something cinematically, you're not actually capturing like the actual experiences of what it's like to be a soldier in sure. in a war zone. Because what my experiences were like was 
think I used to say it was like 99.5% utter fucking boredom mm-hmm. and 0.5% of the time was sheer fucking madness and terror. And it's really hard to kind of put that in, 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 a, in a movie context. I think this TV show, I think, get, that gets the most rise, the show that was done by David Simon back in 2008 called Generation Kill, mm. um, which is about the initial invasion of Iraq from the perspective of Marines and a Rolling Stone journalist by the name of Evan Wright is based on a book called Generation Kill as well. I think that tends to get the atmosphere of what it's like to be a soldier in a war zone better than pretty much any other cinematic um, movie and depiction thereof. Uh, Some people are asking if if Jarhead is a good movie that way. I think it is, although Jarhead the book just sucks. It's it's the worst fucking book about the Marine Corps that's ever been written. I read that book. I read I reread it because it's one of those books I'm like, I don't understand why people love this book. So let me reread it. Maybe I just got it wrong this first time around. But Jarhead as a book, he tried to write it as like a Greek epic, and it was the Persian Gulf War was not a Greek epic. That surprise, surprise. Um, so I, I really did not enjoy either the book or the movie itself, even mm-hmm. though I understand that uh, a lot of folks thought it was it was accurate. So I thought Generation Kill was very accurate in terms of what it's like to be a soldier okay. in a combat zone, because a lot of times, like some of the stuff they're talking about, like trying to find LSA, which is a type of grease you would use to oil your weapon. Okay. That was something that we dealt with, you know, and trying to like ensure that our weapon systems were actually to standard and we could actually engage them if, if, if needed. So that was you know, something that I, I really enjoyed, like a, a oh, it was like a great. series. It was a major subplot in Generation Kill was trying to find this one type of weapons grease that they could utilize in order to oil the bolt and uh, the action of, the, of their weapons. So, uh, movies that get it wrong, I, I don't know. Most Where most movies, mm-hmm. uh, most movies get it wrong. I, I think that uh, I rewatched somewhat recently, probably about a year and a half ago, Black Hawk Down. Um, which is a, a wonderful book. Like, I mm-hmm. strongly recommend you read Mark Bowden's book. He was a Philadelphia Inquirer reporter and a Baltimore Sun reporter. And then he wrote this book called Black Hawk Down. And um, I've actually, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to take a class I was taught by uh, about the American involvement in, in Somalia, taught by several former Army Rangers. Well, there's one Army Ranger uh, who taught it. Uh, his name was Matt Eversman, who was played by Josh Hardett in the movie, um, mm-hmm. which was uh, cool. Um so I, I think that one does get some of the stuff right, although it doesn't. It hmm. how do I, how do I put that? I'll put it in a way that I think you would you would appreciate. All right, I think it tends to f- f- over glorify the American military and what it means to be in combat without looking at a wider context of why sure. the United States was in Somalia. What our like kind of overview, uh, what our worldview was, we got into that engagement in the first place and it just kind of papers that are with a few lines of text at the very beginning and then we're just right onto the action piece of it so it just feels really hollow ultimately when you come back and look at it so i think that's kind of that's where, I, where i come yeah. from i mean that's always the balance right because you want if you want to like you know you want to you want to provide authenticity to the soldier's experience and what that translates to in film is visceral immediacy so much of the time yeah but then you feel like you're kind of losing then because then that leads to glorification so easily i imagine that's that's what a lot of them struggle with but that's really interesting about generation kill uh, I've always have you seen it? I, I haven't, and I've always I've, really, really should. I mean, it's it's, it's really tough. Some yeah. of it's tough watching because I mean, it sure, does not shy away from. Mm-hmm. And this is something I really appreciated too. Was there's several scenes in it which do not take the camera away from like scenes of children who have been killed by sure. American airstrikes and by American soldiers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's really hard to watch, but it's also true to actual real life. You know, war doesn't just affect combatants on the battlefield, especially in a mm-hmm. modern context. I mean, it's never in, in human history, but especially in a modern context where you have ranged weapons and you can kill someone from 
thousands of miles away with a with a drone strike. Oh sure, the world's a battlefield. Yep, I hear you. Battlefield. Yeah. So that's that's you. that's what I think. Uh, we have a we got a question about the the SOS question keeps coming up here. Should we, uh, okay. should we answer this one here? That Tala Tala Ahmed's been asking a few times. Does it or doesn't it take away from the story that humans in Essos are not affected by the White Walkers? That's a really good question. What do you think about that, Jeff? Is that a is that a story flaw or, or not? Um. So we get back to this kind of like death of the author, authorial intent sort of thing. So George has said that the story of a song of ice and fire is a story of Westeros. Is a and but he spends a lot of time in Essos in a dance with dragons specifically. So. It does it take away the fact that it's Essos is doesn't have an issue with the White Walkers? Yeah, kind of, sort of. How do you depict that though without introducing a point of view character all the way up in like Norvos or something like that? It's <laughs> it's kind of right. At some level, it's it's really hard. I think George attempted to kind of retcon a little bit of that in the World of Ice and Fire, where you have like the references to the Five Forts, and you have yep. references to a Children of the Forest type race that was that's living in Essos, legendarily living in Essos. Was it satisfactorily done? I, I guess I, I don't know. What do you th- What do you think? That's a, that's a hard question. I think this is again a similar problem to Dorne, where in, in the original outline of the story, Essos is just where Danny is exiled, because you need a place for Danny to be exiled too. She can't be in Westeros. And as the story gradually evolved, it became more and more and more than that. Especially as she started to spend more time there, and other characters started getting getting involved in that. And yeah, I think. You know, when, when you get to world building like the five forts, that's George's attempt to make that feel a little more coherent than it is in the main narrative. I think you there are parts of Westeros that aren't directly impacted by, you know, the White Walkers, especially in the show, but I think also in the books. I think that is in part why Euron is there in the books, is to threaten these areas of Westeros that are, you know, not, uh, not directly affected by the White Walkers. So in part of this, you know, gets at, yeah, Essos is... Up until Dance, Essos feels less like a, a coherent place in which characters exist and more like a backdrop against which Danny's story, Danny's story takes place. In A Dance with Dragons, that changes, but in some ways that makes this question all the more glaring, doesn't it? Like, are we going to yeah. get to the end of The Winds of Winter and everyone moves on and Essos is just there? Like, in the show, there's not even a mention of what might be left behind politically in Essos after we after we move on from it with Danny. And maybe that's part of the point that, you know, Danny leaves it behind and we don't know when, the, you know, her all her revolutions ended in mystery, but... You know, I think it was un- so unsatisfying, though, wasn't it? Just to that look, is unsatisfying to a Dario in charge of Marine, and then you just roll out, roll out, and to triumphant music as she's sailing with the fleets back to Westeros. Yes, yeah, so like, yeah. What is yeah. the, what's the thing being communicated by by Dan? I, th- I think I think there's going George will strike a different tone in the books, especially because part of like Danny's like huge struggle in A Dance of Dragons is like I need to like go to Westeros, but I can't leave Marine behind. What do I do? Can I leave the city? what happens when I leave the city is Yunkai going to come in and kill everyone and enslave those those that survive I think that's a really interesting sure storytelling device um, and I think it's going to have a major impact I think it's going to be a, a tragic storytelling device that George utilizes in, in the winds of winter but it just didn't really come across in the in the show in season at the end of season six so I yeah I don't know I, I, would, I like I wonder what the next wave of history is going to be because like the way you know the pattern of history has been waves of people from Essos conquering Westeros are we going to be left at the end with the idea that that's done because Bran is now in charge and he's not going to be having any of that? <laughs> or is there going to be a next wave? Is that going to be set up? Are we going to see hints that, no, I see the Shavepate's descendants. They're going to come one day. They're, the Gascari are going to come take Westeros. Maybe that'll be suggested. 
But hmm. I do think there That's is an interesting a, idea. I do think there is a disconnect between the ultimate fate of all that and the like, you know, the big movements, ice and fire, dragons, white walkers, John, Daenerys, King Bran. Essos does feel disconnected from that, and I think that is in large part because it was just supposed to be there for Daenerys, and now it's more than that. But it's not, but not enough of more than that. You know what I mean? It's kind of stuck in between. It's stuck in between, so it leaves kind of a weird taste in, in people's mouths because I think that George does his best storytelling with Danny and Marine, but at the same time, he's trying to press the story back into Westeros and uh, Danny's story specifically and what happens when Danny leaves we're not going to I don't think there's going to be any point of view characters that are going to be left in Essos so nope. George has said he's not going to introduce more point of view characters so I guess we're it's going to be left to our imagination with potential hints and certain storylines that might indicate what's going to happen in the future so yep, we'll have, we'll have to see about all that alright question from Patreon from uh, Javi M who asks what do you think is more problematic for George arrange the story without new point of views or trying to fix the narrative in order to make it believable for the younger characters without a five year gap thanks advance he's not going to be able to attend the live stream because it'll be very late in Spain he will check it out tomorrow um, so okay the two, the, the two possibilities here in terms of what's more difficult are come up with new POVs or tell it as is with the, the younger characters yeah is there uh, a problem with not telling a story from additional point of view characters? I don't think... I really don't think he he needs additional POV characters at this point. I think his geography is pretty well covered and the areas of the story that don't have POVs are designed that way. I think that the parts of the story that might have been more interesting to see really already needed a POV in earlier books. Like, if we were going to see the Tyrells, we really needed need a, a Tyrell POV all along. Or if, you know, if Osha was ever going to be more important. George said he's going to give her some more things now, but, you know, we you know an Osha POV could have been a thing. I mean, the, yeah, the the lack of five-year gap, you can really see why he spent so long trying to make it work, even though it screws up every <laughs> other storyline. Because he, he's, he's I think he's he's going to have trouble making Bran, Sansa, and Arya work without it. I think he's going to have trouble writing them individually in their chapters, as we see in the Winds of Winter sample chapters. And I think he's going to have trouble on Endgame uh, making all of their particular roles be as believable as they are. I think it would have been really very helpful if Bran was going to be 15 or 16 on Endgame. And instead, he's going to be like 11. Yeah. And George said at one point, after he abandoned the five-year gap, something along the lines of, if a 12-year-old has to conquer the world, so be it. That's what I'm going to do in a right. and fire. And here we are in a land of so be it. And you know, that's as, as someone who always thinks the, the grim realism of A Song of Ice and Fire is a little overstated, mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. But I get why he tried really hard. Because it, it, does, it does feel slightly out of place. Yeah. It... it, it but it's, it's okay because the Winds of Winter is coming soon maybe possibly. It's, it's, not, it's not a fatal flaw by any means but the solution was you know I mean this is the problem with fantasy in the whole it's like yeah maybe they, sh- they shouldn't be 11 <laughs> maybe your protagonist shouldn't always be children because you, you kind of run into these problems yeah it seems like the George may have made a mistake early on although like <laughs> so in my research for doing this Ironborn piece um, George said that he had originally planned for the characters to age up naturally so he wouldn't right. have to have a five year gap one chapter would take place one month and the next chapter would take place three months down the road and by the time you're at the end of a Game of Thrones three years have passed that didn't turn out to be the case yep. oh well yeah that's so true and I, again I can see you know if you start off a story you can definitely like oh I'll, of course I'll age them up as I need to that'll be easy but you know turns out not so much <laughs> not easy at all Eric R. asks, what do you make of the original Daenerys dying young of the Shivers during the Winter in Fire and Blood? For shouting for her death during conflict against the others, question mark, or does John kill her like in season eight? In retrospect, a couple of people have already said this, uh, the Fire and Blood one looks like a red herring now. Yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe he was preserving his options, but yeah, that, uh, but you know, there's, 
that's always the thing when we talk about the ice and fire stuff is, you know, we always got to think about it like, is this supposed to be literal or is this supposed to be metaphorical? Is this supposed to, is, is that supposed to be Danny literally dying from the cold in the north or is it like the metaphorical cold of utter rejection and alienation and, you know, being killed by snow? Hint, hint, hint. You know, so I, I you know, I, I, th- I think you could argue, argue that in either direction. But yeah, you know, com- coming back after season eight, not just with season eight <laughs> as the example, John killing Daenerys starts to seem pretty well strongly set up in the book. So I would lean towards that. Yeah, I I think a red herring is probably true. And I, when we when we were doing Fire and Blood, remember if you remember this, we were doing our episodes. We were like, this seems like pretty clear foreshadowing. What's going to happen with Daenerys Targaryen in in A Dream of Spring? And we'll see if that ends up being the case in season eight of Game of Thrones. And but we were the fools. We got fooled by <laughs> David Benioff and Dan Weiss at the very least, and probably by George R. R. Martin as well. I think that the setup has been there for John to kill Danny fairly early on. Uh, we referenced this several podcasts ago, but uh, the Girls Gone Cat and went through podcast went through the John chapters and found some mm-hmm. definite foreshadowing for that event, yep. especially in how John and Egret's relationship evolved, um, and then the long term. So, yeah, I think that that John is still going to do the deed in a song of ice and fire. So we're gonna gonna be a gonna be hard to to do that. Um, we got, a re- we got a really cool message on, on Patreon. I just wanted to share it real quick uh, from Oh My God Bears. He says, hey, guys, I just want to thank you for making such lovely content. Today, I defended my PhD, and especially given the coming of the apocalypse that is 2020, your podcast slash live streams have been engaging, entertaining, and super stress relieving. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to listening to many chapters in your scum. Well, oh, that's first of all, nice. that's very kind of you as well, and congratulations on defending yeah. your, your PhD thesis. That's awesome, brother. That's kick sister. ass. That's, yeah. That takes so much devotion, so well done indeed. Yeah, that's, that's great. So we're getting a bunch of requests to answer uh, uh, Micah's Red Wall question. A bunch of people oh. are jumping in on this one in the chat. Uh, why, why is Red Wall great and why should it, it should be read by all? So yeah, I, I have a lot of love for the Red, red Wall books. Uh, when I was a kid, I read them over and over again. Um, I love just the, the little details of their world building and how each geographic location was, was explored and these recurring, like, you know, there's like a group of shrews who hang out in the forest and just different generations of them show up in all, you know, in all versions of the books and... You know, you just, you know, this one book would be set in this era and then this other book would go back and fill in these details. But yeah, what I really, uh, you know, love about them now and what I recommend them to kids are they're, they're these just these passages in them that are just like really kind of just intense and awesome. And like most of them are very cute and like, oh, they're drinking cordial and they're squirrels. But like, <laughs> like at one point they go to the, the bat mountain of the badgers and he's like yelling to them from the top and he's forging a sword out of a falling star and then in another book, like, a bunch of children get kidnapped by a bunch of slave traders, and it's, like, awful and lingered on for a long time. And um, so, yeah, those, you know, like, everyone has the, there's there's a whole cottage industry of articles online of, this children's media is actually really intense when you go back and watch it. It's like, yeah, because we used to trust <laughs> that children could handle scary, intense things in their children's media. We used to have that thing, and now, you know, I like Steven Universe just fine, but the entire Cal Arts thing is just like, you know, I wish we... Let's, let's give, 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 frighten kids a little bit more than, than than we're doing right now. I think would be a wonderful thing. But yeah, that's yeah. I, I do um I do I do love the Redwall aspects for that. You just be reading along. Ah, everything is cozy. They're all wearing robes. Look at the Abbot, and then it's just like some sort of bleak war crime happens. And <laughs> I love I love that aspect. I love that aspect of them. I have never read Redwall. I mean, I don't read, but I mean, like, I've never read what read. You know, I've never had the audiobooks done for Redwall. So, do you recommend them for an almost four year old male? You're you're probably too old now. I think I, I think the first uh, I think the first few books might might be uh, I think they're well written enough that uh, someone new could get engaged with them. 
I think later on, it's like you have to be a kid or you have to love the story to get anything out of. There's there's a whole clan called the the Moral Foxes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and they live on an island. And there's there's a bunch of them you see each with their own specific quirks. Yeah, if you're not into it, but the first one is is really is really over the top written in a wonderful way. Like everything is a monologue and everything has exclamation points. So you might get a kick out of that. Maybe we'll see. I'll I'll put it on my my list. Bush, I can't write either because I'm illiterate. So I guess I'll have to try. <laughs> You're to just doomed. It. There's the there's the the books called the Deptford Mice that are less popular, but those are like those are like Redwall except like with really explicit gore and body horror and just awfulness. So those hmm. we, those those adults might might get more out of there. Robin Jarvis wrote those the, the Deptford Mice trilogy. Those don't entirely work because they're just a little too over the top. But like the dissonance between them all being cute mice and just like endlessly awful things happening, I kind of enjoy that. <laughs> I, I sounds right up your alley. <laughs> True. All right, Samir K asks, who would be a who would be a better team, Danny? Who? Excuse me, one more time. Who would be a better team, Danny Peel point of view, Missandei or Strong Belwas? <laughs> That's an interesting one. What do you think about that? So, do we need another Victorian esque point of view in the form of Strong Belwas? I mean, what would Strong Belwas's point of view be like besides like nice Victorian, nice Victorian? Still That's kills true. people, but still, you know. Uh, so I think Missandei would be an excellent point of view for for Daenerys Targaryen. I think we've we've talked about that in the past about how it was a missed opportunity to not introduce Missandei as a point of view character uh, when George chose to introduce Barristan Selmy as this point of view character to kind of untangle the Marinese non. Um, so I would say Missandei. I think given her knowledge of languages, it would be really interesting because I do wonder at some level whether there are certain things that like. Barristan isn't necessarily seeing well or correctly, or that Quentin isn't seeing well and correctly mm-hmm. in A Dance with Dragons. Yes. And especially like that Tyrion too might not see because none of these guys should really know Giscari. But right. who does know Giscari? Masande would know Giscari, the Giscari language. And that makes it interesting because she would have a view of what's potentially what is actually happening behind the scenes and what people would tend to disguise through their use of language that would confuse these dumb Westerosi who don't know shit at all. Yeah, no, those are those are those are excellent points, and it's it's that again, the thing I was talking about, like with the sex scenes, where it's like I don't think George is unjustified in writing it this way. It's just that the way it all adds up to is a certain suspicious convenience. Like I get that, like we're you know we don't get access to what's really going on in Marine or what Gascari culture is really like because all these characters are outsiders. But it's like, but then George, that just that really means is you don't have to write it, and you don't have to come up with it. So yeah. I think it would be really useful to have a POV to make that contrast and to show how Danny is is isn't quite getting down from her pyramid enough, or how Quentin has blinders on. It, w- it would you know you need a contrast. You need someone who does understand what's going on. And Tyrion kind of is that because he is politically much smarter than a lot of the other characters surrounding him, but he's still an outsider here. And I think having yeah having uh, Masandai POV, I think I think could be really interesting. I think. You know, you could definitely have a, some kind of complicated arc for her where she wants to stay loyal to Danny, but she's worried about where these reforms are going and what's going to happen next. And I think that would have been interesting. I agree. I, it could have been done well. I think like so. I think like George when he was writing a Dance Dragons, he was like that deep in the game, like because he's introduced Barrison very late in running a Dance Dragons, like within about a year and a half before the book actually published. I think he saw the opportunity to be like, oh, I've got this major battle coming on. So who mm-hmm. would be a better character than Barristan Selmy being the point of view for the battle itself? And wouldn't it be really cool to have this really dumb guy? Uh, well, Barristan's not. OK, Barristan is dumb. But but he's he's 
can potentially be like the kind of Ned Stark type role of not really understanding what's going on in Marine. And I can rewrite Ned, Ned Stark's character. And I love writing Ned's, Ned's chapters in, in a Game of Thrones. And I don't know. Yeah, no, again, it's, it's not like it's not that what, what exists is bad or unjustifiable. It's just that, I you know, I think I think, oh, aren't aren't all these clueless outsiders blinkered and foolish? I think that would work better if the reader didn't feel like a clueless, clueless blinkered outsider. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, we're stuck in the same position. We don't know what they're missing either. I think it wouldn't it be, I think, you know, some of George's best work comes from using contrasting POVs, like like Bran and Jon when they pass, uh, like, ships in the night and Storm of Swords. Like, wouldn't, that would be way less interesting if we only had one of their perspectives and had to yeah. figure out, oh, I guess the other one is over there. No, that, that two-setter works because you're like, oh, no, Bran, it's Jon. Oh, no, Jon, it's Bran. Right. We, never really, we don't really get that in Essos because everyone's kind of clueless. So, yeah. Yeah, that was it. but again, like, George is probably at that point writing a dancer. He's like, I, I just cannot, like, I just got to, like, get the story done. Like, I, I, I can't totally write, get like, that. five Missandei chapters and four or six Barrison chapters because there's six we know that exists when he's writing a dance with dragons. Two then end up in the Winds of Winter, so. You're, you're totally right. Uh, it's, it's hard. Like That's I, the writing process. I, this is not George going, wah, I shall deny anyone their representation, I think. Exactly. Yep, I think this is how it went. But it could have been a better story if he had yeah. uh, come up with it. But it's all good. It's right. all good. All right, we'll do one from um, from Patreon. Uh, Kyle A. asks, who would win in a fight, George R. R. Martin in his prime or Tolkien in his prime? Uh, Tolkien fought in World War One, so I'm going to go with Col- with Tolkien on that one. Oh, literal fighting. I, oh, I yeah. guess. I don't I know. Mean, like a lit- I guess yeah. some sort of, I was thinking of some sort of literary off. Um, <laughs> oh, literary off. Yeah, I mean, you've seen the pictures of George. No, that man is not interested. That man is about as, interesting in fight- as interested in fighting as I am. Um... In terms of in terms of you know if, if there were a literary battle, I, I think I think George is is uh, uh, better at you know writing with exciting cinematic urgency than than Tolkien. I think Tolkien could. I'll never forget when he describes the Battle of Helm's Deep and the lightning flash and you know seeing the white hand on everyone, you know every orc all at once on a sudden like like ooh that's really chilling. But the thing is George does stuff like that like ten times a chapter, <laughs> and like Tolkien does it like you know once or twice. Because that's just, you know, that's not necessarily where Tolkien's interests were, and George was being driven by a much kind of faster media in a different era. But, yeah, I think there are there are levels of intellectual and philosophical depth that Tolkien possesses that George never even tried to touch. But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, well, what's the reader going to do now? Ooh, what are they going to do now? You know, I think mm-hmm. I think George is better at that than almost anybody. Agreed. And I think, like, one of the interesting things about George is has the influence of mass media on George R. R. Martin, which didn't yes. exist in Tolkien's time period when he was writing. I mean, you have films and stuff like that when, when Tolkien's writing Lord of the Rings, but uh, George had comics and movies and television. And I think it makes a really, it, it, to kind of go back to an earlier question about the impact that of, of Song of Ice and Fire on, on the greater spectrum of a whole, I think George took a lot of these things that were in you know, consumption in American media consumption primarily mm-hmm. and filtered a story through that a, yeah. a Westerosi medievalish story through that. I think it's a really fascinating way of writing it. So I, I prefer George's writing to Tolkien's um, not that I, I think that Tolkien's a bad writer. I do find him a little bit dry, but I also think he was writing in a different era. Yeah. And I think George, I think, I, I think too, like here, here's something I, I, and this is probably my own bias coming in. You know, I was, grew up being influenced by mass media culture. I didn't sure. ever read comic books, but I read, you know, I watched the X-Men series when I was a kid and the Batman series and the Superman series and watched movies and television. So I was very influenced by that. So George's style tends to appeal to me more than, than Tolkien's style because I was never bookish until I think I was a teenager. So For sure, yeah. And, and yeah, Tolkien, yeah, I mean, the comparisons you make to Tolkien are like, you know, Beowulf and Homer. Right. And the comparisons you make, you know, for George R. R. Martin are, you know, it's you, you talk about like the Godfather. 
Like, you know, it's still it's right. a grand sweep of rich history in The Godfather, but it's like, now this is the story about these three characters against this rich backdrop. And it's, it's a different difference of priority. Great. All right, Renzo G asks, why do you guys think Sanders' Aceous Barry with Sansa is overlooked unlike Jorah slash Danny or Barrison slash Ashardame? So I'm going to dispute a little bit of the question because I think this is something that is really analyzed significantly, the age disparity between Sansa and Sander. And we did talk about it in our episode uh, that discussed Sansa with uh, with Chloe from, from the Girls Going Canon podcast. So I don't think it's overlooked, um, whether it's overemphasized or underemphasized compared to Jorah versus Danny or, or Dan- Barrison versus Ashardane. I, I couldn't really answer that question. Do you have a perspective on it? or? Yeah, I mean, Barristan slash Asharadane is barely talked about at all. So right. I don't think anything is overlooked relative to that. But, uh, no, I mean, I, th- I certainly th- think there are Sandor Sansa shippers who, you know, don't take age into, don't think the age gap between them should matter in universe. But, I think the way that relationship is written is is on a fantasy bleeding into a nightmare. And that's always the way it's written. And the age disparity is part of that. And yeah, that's extremely uncomfortable to have that touched up against romance. And I understand why for a lot of people that would seem, you know, too much or too gross. But I I, 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 I think it's an, an, an intentional bringing together of opposite ideas to create a tense, powerful situation. And I think that's a lot of what not real world healthy romance is like but I think that's a huge part of what rom- romance in art is like and I mean Jorah Danny specifically it's it's because like you know Sandor and Sansa have a handful of interactions in a very fraught environment Jorah and Danny are constantly with each other and this is a relationship Jorah is slowly deliberately soberly mm-hmm. trying to cultivate over time so while I don't excuse Sandor for his actions He's, he's so clearly less in control of himself and this relationship is, is takes up so much less time that I don't think Sandor Clegane quite has the capacity and time to reflect and think about what he's doing and Jorah Mormont does. So mm. I think if Sandor is behaves the, the same when he gets out of the Quiet Isle, then yeah, screw him. And then, you know, the, the age disparity is one of many reasons why he should never go near Sansa Stark again. <laughs> But, like, Jorah has had thousands of easy chances to be better than this, and he just doesn't. doesn't. So, no. for me, like, it's... So, they, I'm looking at the age gap in those cases, not not quite in isolation, but more in terms of how we think about these characters and their relationships and the whole. And when it comes to shipping discourse, we, 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 just, we just need to recognize that shipping characters in fiction is just not the same as plopping them in reality and saying, you two have to be together now. It's just not. I mean, you can draw some connections, I suppose, but... I think people should allow for a, 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 to carve out a literal fantasy space in that regard. I agree. I agree with that. All right. We got a question, a personal question for us from Omar Little, apparently, who's <laughs> said, asked, did these guys even go to college? Did, did, I, I guess he's asking if we went to college. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I don't know why, but we sure did. <laughs> I, I went to college to, um, yeah, waste waste the government's money I mean, <laughs> right? exactly your degree was in political science right yes for some reason again yeah. well I mean I was, a, I was a minor in political science so I'm right there with you yeah just uh, couldn't shouldn't should not have gotten a D in that one class of political science I would have had a double major I was a history major so yeah all good stuff oh my god bears asks are Mormont skin changers are they really bears <laughs> um <laughs> 
I'm, I'm pretty sure Tormund is just, just being metaphorical there. <laughs> I'm, I think, here's the thing. I think the Mormonts probably were at some point, but the, the Starks have, like, sucked up all this magic in the north. <laughs> yeah. And then made it theirs. So I think it, it, you know, it got, I think I think it got hijacked. And I think the Starks, like, you know, went to the Mormonts, was like, okay, which bride in this generation has the most magic? Mm-hmm. She's coming to Winterfell. Yep. And I, I think, you know, they did that with every family a bunch of different times. And so that produced the, the modern situation in which you have all these, you know, you have our banner is a bear and our banner is a giant. And there's probably some literal connections lost in myth, lost in history. But the real magic has been consolidated along with political power at Winterfell. I agree. All right, I'm going to throw this question over to you, and I'm going to use the bathroom real quick. So sure. I'm going to pause up here for Micah. So just feel free to wax on and on and on, and I'll come back and I'll say I agree with everything that you're saying. Oh, well, thanks. That sounds, that sounds spectacular. All right, be right back. <laughs> Micah asks, which minor characters do you think will die and wins? Less important than Loras equals minor, in my opinion. Hmm, so many minor characters to die and wins. Jeez. Um... Well, I mean, like, there's a bunch of people who are probably going to die at River Run. You know, in the second Red Wedding stuff, Dave and Jenna, a bunch of Freys, they're all going to die. A bunch of folks at the wall, you know, Bowen Marsh and his co-conspirators are definitely going to go down. Um, obviously, at Winterfell, you have larger ones like Roose and Ramsay, but like in a big bucket wall, probably he has pretty much signed his own death sentence by saying he just wants to go down fighting the Boltons. So they're going to be a, they're going to be into that. Um... Let's see, you know, obviously in Essos, I just keep saying obviously because there's a lot of people obviously going to die in the Winds of Winter. In Essos, you have uh, characters among the Masters who are probably going to go, Hisdar Zolorak and uh, the Green Grace, who's obviously the Harpy. Probably most of Victarian's people are going to go down. I can't imagine them lasting too much longer. And, you know, obviously we'll see how far things get in the destruction of King's Landing. Uh, can't imagine Lancel going much longer. I don't know if you consider him equal to or less than Loras. They might be on kind of the same level. Uh, the Veil, I could see a bunch of characters surviving for the moment and probably just dying in the slaughterhouse when they get north. And then, let's see, what area haven't I covered? Uh, oh, yeah, like oh, pretty much everyone in Old Town, except for like Sam and Sorella, are probably going to go. Uh, a bunch of the Brotherhood folks, the more corrupted Brotherhood folks, are probably going to die. The Golden Company, eventually, who knows if that's in T.O. Well. I pretty much covered everyone, Jeff. I think everyone's dead. Okay, I agree I've, 100%. I've, I've, I've killed off them all. I, I 100% agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, Caitlin K. asks, is there any hope for Marcella or Tommen? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> No, uh, no, they're they're no. like they would be doomed if, even if the prophecy didn't guarantee they'd be doomed, which it does. Yeah, they're they're. Well, we you said it really well. Doomed little angels back in like when we were first like doing. Our- yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, they're to to crown them is to kill them, and um, as uh, as Tyrion says about Marcella, and they're Cersei's kids, so they're always going to be in the you know the crossfire once once the twin sisters got out. And they just, you know, they're 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 powerless. They're they're little avatars of power who have no control over their own lives. So yeah, they're uh, they're screwed. Uh yeah, they're they're so dead. So sorry. <sighs> More death questions. Clint W asks, which death are you most looking forward to? Which death am I most looking forward to? Well, probably Victarians. That's gonna be Some that's gonna be the the funniest. <laughs> the funniest. Slash most metal. Very I mean, cathartic, I think. Yeah, I think Victorian's a good one. Um, uh, Bowen Marsh probably is sure. an interesting there you go. candidate. That's a good one. Yeah, so watch what happens with him. Um, 
point of view characters, I, I think that Victorian's definitely dead. Um, other ones, I don't know. I, I it's interesting. I, I don't think that George is going to do this, but I, I am. When you reread the Forsaken, and you're like, yeah, Aaron's definitely going to die. Like you, I never felt a lot of sympathy for Damp Aaron until like the Forsaken and actually being sure, like, yeah, sure. this, this guy is going to die. But it's not the case for Victorian. We're just like this guy's blundering into a fiery inferno, and it's hilarious. He's just setting the pyre up around him. Yep, that's going to be spectacular. Mm, it's all good all good stuff all right really good question from Margot L and she asks in which point of views do you feel Georgia Martin best establishes a distinctive style or voice for that particular character hmm that's very good very good question I mean I I mean it's hard not to pick Cersei Uh, (laughs) again like I love Cersei's chapters and I can't other than the walk like I couldn't tell you what happens in them what happens in Cersei? She 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 blows. She burns down a tower at one point. She burns down the tower of the hand, and then she, the sparrows oh. get mad, and she, she has get, that sex scene. She rearms all of the sparrows. She does that, but I couldn't tell you what chapter that happens in. And everything I'm saying here sounds like a criticism. It's not I, because what I love about Cersei's chapters is the style, is the voice, is the tone. I just see her name and I go, ah, yes, I'm here, and it's it's just this, this sheer glorious rampant descend into madness uh, that that I love. Uh, so that and Victorian for kind of the same reason uh, for just like oh god this is it's this is like bugs crawling on my skin I love it do you think he just writes better villains than protagonists say again do you think he writes better villains than protagonists Ooh. in terms of like point of view characters that's an interesting question I think maybe he has an easier time I think so too than Tyrion, he does with someone Victorian, like Bran Cersei yeah I, th- I mean that I think that's part, maybe part of why Bran is so hard for him but yeah, I you know, I was yeah those those the the kind of ironic sleazy villain for like Theon in Clash of Kings is another good example. Uh, I really like how George writes that that kind of character. I yeah I agree. Um, like distinctive voices. I mean, I, this will probably seem weird coming for me, but I think he does. Sansa has a distinctive style and voice. Oh yeah, the way her chapters are written is is really uh, distinctive. Uh, you know, I don't really see a lot of that in fiction. I think. Uh, I mean, Quentin, I think, is another character. He does a really good job of writing a distinctive voice for him, which is really interesting given the fact that he appears in one book and dies in one book, but he's able to really flesh out who he is as a character and he feels distinct. Sure. And uh, and I think it's really cool the way that George did it in A Dance of Dragons, specifically in Quentin's arc and a little bit less in, in Young Griff's arc, in having the person who's not actually the hero of the story being thrust into the hero role in the story, which makes for an interesting dynamic. So, Oh, sure, yeah. I love that. Because it lets you know that it's just a structure and that you know you infuse it with what, with what you bring to the table. And yeah, I love Quentin's, uh, I love the style of Quentin's chapters that I've, I've talked about before about how uh, until the Dragon Tamer, uh, they're never about the main event. Like the yes. main event in Quentin's story happens off screen. Either you don't see it or it happens in other people's POV chapters. Mm. And his chapters are all about, oh my God, what just happened? What the <laughs> hell do I do now? And I think that's really interesting because it builds to the conclusion that you should be turning back and then he doesn't do it. And the interesting right. theme becomes what what possibly leads one to the mindset that you would walk to your own death and the answer is the hero delusion thinking you're the protagonist and that's that's what gives that story structure and i think if quentin's chapters were just about the main events i think they would be less distinct but the fact that they're about the backlash and the aftermath i think that is that that distinctive style i love that that's it's it's really good and i think like something that I think sometimes gets underemphasized when it comes to Quentin's story is that people are like ooh look at George playing with the trope of the frog who became a prince and ooh he got rejected so he's like going up against the trope but I I think it's a it's a richer 
fuller story to have mm-hmm. the perspective explored of what it actually means to not be the chosen one and how that actually impacts the character of Quentin Martell and how he feels that he's very much in a position where he doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to be the guy who's going to Daenerys Targaryen. Yep. He'd rather be back at Castle Ironwood, you know, kissing uh, one of the Ironwood daughters. And that's have, yeah. sweet and extremely sad, too, at the same time. So Having a normal life. I mean, that's that's the ultimate point of Quentin's story is that, you know, all these these things of daring do and bravado you dream of, it's just that in practice they're... They're lies and they're, they're, they hurt you and they lead to people dying and you would have been better off, you know, not, not even better off leading an actual grand glorious life full of adventure, but just going home and just leaving a, a you know, living a life where you're devoted, devoted to your spouse and your animals and your, your, mm-hmm. your hobbies. And that's something I, I have, I've only related to more ever since I was reading A Dance with Dragons is that no, it's, oh, it's yeah. all bullshit and you just need to take care of people in your life. I just, yeah, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. It's really, really good. Barrel Raider asks, at Porquen, do you guys think that George should give us another sample chapter? If so, which do you prefer? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I mean, really, I think you should just embrace the Dickensian model and just give us a chapter a month. Pure episodic. We'll finish the book that way, George, <laughs> just as you're writing it. No, um, I think uh, a Sam chapter would be a good one if he was going to do another one. Not just because I have a bias towards, you know, the old time <laughs> plot in general. But like, uh, you know, a Sam chapter or Sam chapter or the opening Sam chapter would probably be a lot like the Sansa sample chapter. And that would be mostly catching us up because this mm-hmm. is a plotline we haven't had since Feast. But like, remember, Sam's in Old Town. So here are all the factions in Old Town. Here's what's going on. Here's how his education has been up to. And probably like the end of the chapter, we'll get like you know, a sting for major future events. Like, oh, the fleet is on the horizon or that Pate fellow is up to something, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that would, if you wanted to give us something that wouldn't necessarily give anything away, I think, because, you know, you can't give us a brand chapter yeah. or a Melisandre chapter because then that's just, you're exposing huge <laughs> parts of the Winds of Winter for us. So I think if he was going to, if he was going to do that, a Sam chapter would be a smart choice. Yeah, I think Sam's a good choice. I mean, we haven't had a, a Samuel chapter since A Feast for Crows. There's, Samuel's been off page for 15 years, right? Sam and Brienne are the two point of view characters, point of view chapters, point of view characters, there we go, first one's correct, that have not been featured in A Song of Ice and Fire in, uh, in a long, long time. Uh, it was nice getting Aaron Dampere's perspective in the, in the Forsaken in 2016, given that we hadn't had his perspective in, in a long, long time as well. The question is whether George has written any Samuel chapters, and that's something that... True. I, I yet to see evidence for uh, so uh. hopefully yeah, details details <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I think that would be that would be cool to have that I I always wonder like why yeah. George didn't have like a throw in a Sam chapter in a Dance of Dragons why he ended up choosing Jamie's one chapter in a Dance of Dragons instead of a character like Sam um, that would be uh, that would be a question I have I think um, in terms of like sample chapters that, that exist in some form where we know that George has written them uh, I, I I think having getting Victorian's full chapter from the winds of winter that we have a, a partial of would be really cool. Hmm. Um, uh, Tyrion's first chapter in, in, in the winds of winter uh, apparently is him playing Savas with uh, Brown Ben Plum, right? Which doesn't really give a lot away, but I think would be really interesting to see that. I think a lot of uh, our my friend, John, AKA Hamfast 42 on, on Reddit and elsewhere has talked about how he is desperate to get that chapter because he wants to learn more about how the rules of Savas actually play out which i have no real interest in but hey i, w- I would throw a bone to my friend john there and, and getting that getting that one uh done so i don't know all right that's a great way to start tina Tyrion's arc and tea i was just with him playing the game the game of thrones which will play so effectively and devastatingly you know throughout the book oh, it's gonna be really really good cannot mm-hmm. wait 
Clint asks, which Song of Ice and Fire character do you most want to drink with? Well, I'm going to tell you not Tyrion because I'll be super fucking hungover after that. I know, right? I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a, a delicate fading flower. I can't necessarily keep up booze-wise with folks. Um, but, you know, I would, I would love to love to have a pint with uh, Marwin the Mage at the Quill and Tankard after, after a day in his, his study group. <laughs> that would be a hoot. He's got those stories to tell. So he'd probably be my, my choice among among the more uh, the more major the major cast. Um, obviously, drinking with Cersei is perilous, <laughs> but it seems like fun. <laughs> oh, uh, Lewis in the chat said a Thoris of Mere. Excellent choice. That's yeah. a good. That's a good choice too. Yeah, I mean Cersei, you can end up you know getting laid or getting murdered. I mean it's one of the two. Both right? really probably both. Probably both. Yeah. So I mean that would that would that would be that would be fun. I guess. Not Stannis, like, we can say that much. No, St- Stannis would have, of course, was he, he drinks water with a squeeze of lemon in it and some salt. Salt That's just, specifically for flavor, George says, which <laughs> just like, oh, like that just, that opens up just a whole world of, of tortured self-denial in two words, for flavor. <laughs> Ugh. I mean, there is a tradition in the, in the United States Navy of they, they throw a pinch of salt in their, their coffee. I don't know why, but that's that is something that people do. <laughs> you, you know, that's not that's not why empires colonize people for salt. You're really ruining the sacrifices, everyone. <laughs> Yikes! Um, there we oh, go. There's yeah. my choice right there. Renzo G brings up Dollar Set. Yes, that would be a good uh, person to have a drink. Very good with, choice. I think. Oh man, that would be fun. Uh-uh. So here's a question about Cersei. Cersei's becoming a popular topic in the chat. So what will George do with Cersei? Is she gone her by the end of Winds? Is she going to chill with a crazy Euron like in the show, but as a Night Queen or something? Let's see that tinfoil. I think that Cersei survives. I, I think that you think he's gonna, she's going to die at the end of, Woods, of the Winds Winter, right? I mean, a lot, a lot of explodey stuff has to happen in King's Landing involving a lot of different factions. Who knows how <laughs> that's going to be paced uh, uh, out specifically. Uh, Cersei makes sense to me for like a climactic death in the Winds of Winter. I could see that. I don't think she's going to be hanging around as a major locus of villainy like she did in the show. So I think George might try to remove her from the board, but this might be something he's trying to, you know, fit into Winds of Winter uh, and can't. So there might be something I'm sure is going to be shifted to Dream that George would rather not. And maybe that's going to be bad. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of explodey things that are supposed to happen in in King's Landing. I, I do wonder whether most of that will be in the Dream of Spring, since I don't actually anticipate Daenerys Targaryen arriving back to Westeros. I mean, if she does, she'll be in on Dragonstone by the end of the book. Um, I, I do think she gets ousted from King's Landing. I, I think so. I, I think I've, I've alluded to this before, and I'll just allude to it again because I've not fully fleshed out my thought here. Um, but I do think that Cersei might occupy like a Saruman type role in the story. She sure. flees back to her to Casterly Rock, and then at the very end of the story, she we have a scouring of the Riverlands or something like that, where Cersei shows back up with like three hundred Lance Dragoons or you know the remainder of the Brave Companions or something like that, something wild, and then the heroes have to go and kind of put her down. So I think that could be a potential story closer for Cersei. I, I think sure. she will survive into a Dream of Spring, but I think we'll we'll have to see how that one goes. I can see that. I think um, I, I, I see Euron more in the scouring role. I think overall, if I had to say, Cersei, I think is you know I, I think the Valonqar thing stands out so strongly for me. I think yeah. that's 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 got to be her fate. But I, I could definitely see that happening at different points. You know, in in Jamie's story, because that's you know when I think about the end of Jamie's story, structurally, I have, you know, yeah, I think you have to tie it Cersei and Jamie's story together. So I can see that happening in a bunch of different times. That's true. Yeah. 
We'll have to see. Mohammed asks, what is the end game for the Stannis adjacent characters? Selyse, suicide question mark, Melisandre, question mark, question mark, question mark, Patchface, question mark, question mark, question mark. Patchface is just all question marks, question marks. Uh, what do you, yeah, what do you think about that? What do you think is going to happen to those folks? Uh, Selyse will die, Melisandre will die, Patchface will die. And there you have it, folks. Yeah, I mean, they're all doomed. That's definitely, yeah. Uh, but um, I honestly, so this, I was in the weird thing for Selyse, I think um, as, as much as the burning of Shireen in the show was is going to happen in the books but is going to be in a different context I do think the emotional reaction of Selyse to the burning of Shireen is going to be similar from the show to the books of a woman who has kind of distanced herself from her own daughter rejects her own daughter until the very end where she's watching her daughter burn um, and then realizes all along like oh my god what have I done sort of thing so I think that will likely be similar for Selyse I think suicide will likely be the Potentially, the, will, will potentially be the way that that Selyse goes out. Um, mm-hmm. Melisandre, I think, has some more plotline to play beyond the burning itself. We did see her in season eight of Game of Thrones showing up to um, to light a fire and then right. die. I mean, it was cool the way she showed up and the way that she kind of went out. I think that was one of my favorite parts of, of the oh, Long yeah. Night episode. I thought it was a, um, a, a nice overall conclusion to her arc. Uh, but yeah, yeah she, her being a POV character now in the books, I don't think she's going to have a whole thing where she, you know, vanishes off screen for a while and comes back at the end. Uh, I doubt that. But um, I, I do think I agree that, you know, I, th- I could see uh, Celise killing herself in, in the books as well. I don't, you know, her relationship to Shireen hasn't been set up particularly strongly, but I could definitely see that happening. Uh, Melisandre, I think, you know, her turning over to serve John, I think, does make a, a good deal of sense. And that, you know, having having Davos, you know, brandish angrily the proof of her misdeeds, I think that, that overall works well. So I think it could be very similar structure. Yeah, she also goes out to get the, against the others. I just don't think there's going to be time enough for a huge gap in her story like there was in the show. I think it might flow smoothly from, like, her misdeeds are made public and she commits to self-sacrifice. Patchface, Mel had that vision about her surrounded by skulls, so maybe he's going to try to stop the sacrifice of Shireen. Maybe he's the one who kills Melisandre. I don't know. We could, I, could, I could see that. But I think probably Patchface just tries to tries to stop the sacrifice. Maybe he, maybe he sees it coming. <sighs> Imagine him being, like, the, the, the attempted hero at the end of the Stannis storyline. I think that would be uh, right. something. Yeah. Yep. No, that makes sense. I think we'll take a few more questions here. Yeah, we'll take a couple more. I'm up for it. Really appreciate you all sticking around and chatting with us. And uh, hope this has been to your liking. And, um, you know, we'll maybe do this again at some point down the road for sure. Leo has asked this question a couple times. I don't have a good answer for it, so I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Which historical characters slash events would you like to see imitated in A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, I mean, I really like Bravo's pushing us into the Renaissance. So anything more of that, you know, anything more... Anything more Medici-oriented, getting into the world of artists and patrons, I think would be really cool. I don't know how much interest George has in any of it, but, you know, I've, I liked, like, the, uh, the, the, the Lac Lamora books and fantasy that pushes in that direction. So, you know, more, more of that. I know he said he's got you know, plenty of stories in Bravos to tell, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, maybe some of the, a lot of those revolve around Arya and the Faceless Man, but for me, like, that's the least interesting part of Bravos. <laughs> I, I, I'm really interested in, like, you know, the, in, in the merchant world and how that relates to the political world, the world of theater that we see. We're like, you know, all the high and low must come together to see themselves mocked. Like, ah, I see where, George, I see what historical period you're drawing from now, and it's not quite the medieval era anymore. You're, you're, like you're, that, yeah. you're pushing it forward a bit. So, uh, you know, I would, I would uh, not, not a specific, maybe Lorenzo de' Medici, I don't know, not, not, not a specific character comes to mind, but like that, 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 that general push towards how, how cities were organized, how art changed, and arts, arts changing relationship to power, I think is something I would like to see more of within a Song of Ice and Fire context. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a really good 
observation. And I think doing more Renaissance stuff would make the story a little bit more flavorful than simply just being a meditation on medieval Europe and medieval Northern Europe specifically. So for me, I, I think I wrote an essay about the potential that George might depict an Agincourt like battle in the winter sure. between the Golden Company and the Tyrells. So I think that might be a type of thing that George might do. We'll have to see how that actually plays out in uh, in the Winds of Winter. Um, so that that's one thing I could potentially see is George doing historically. So that'd be that would be a lot of fun. Um, otherwise, I think like your answer is really good. I think the Renaissance period and Venice and Amsterdam would be a really cool. Yeah, uh, Amsterdam. Mix I was thinking those, about yeah. too. Uh, obviously, with the canals. I mean, people always think of Venice first, but yeah, those that that kind of yeah that that kind of pan European era I think would be interesting. And also, you know, just to. Uh, you know the the whole notion of a dark ages has been kind of debunked at this point and I think reflecting yeah, that in right fantasy that. would be great mm-hmm. a little meta question for us from Guilty Undertaker yes are we still going to get a Fever Dream episode this month in the Forsaken Part 2 the answer is yes 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 we'll we be, are uh, we're going to be doing we'll be the t- Fever yeah, Dream uh, episode probably next week I got to make a little uh, family trip uh, unfortunately some uh, some uh, some death in my family so uh, we're going to be doing the Fever Dream episode uh, next week and uh, the Forsaken one a couple weeks after that near the end of the month so don't worry they will still be coming to you they're still coming and of course we've got Davos 2 of course after that so uh, yes or before that but it's going to be before that because we're in and around that uh, a week from today which would be a lot of fun Eric R. asks if you could have any filmmaker make a, in a Song of Ice and Fire spinoff series like House of the Dragon who would you choose I, let me ask you this I'll, I'll rephrase the question would you want David Lynch to direct House of the Adra- House of the Dragon um I don't know I think uh <laughs> <laughs> I would like to have David Lynch direct certain like uh, chamber drama aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire, certain character interactions, obviously stuff like The House of the Undying. I don't know, a whole like spin-off series, political and fantasy, you know, I'm not D- David Lynch's Dune is something I more tolerate than enjoy. So I, d- I don't think that's necessarily would necessarily be his wheelhouse. My my honest answer about this and I'm sure a lot of people will groan is George Lucas. I'm sorry, but even even if you don't Go like on. the Star Wars prequels, this the uh, like an eerily perfect, beautiful world of overly beautiful people not realizing the rot within them. That actually sounds about right for the for the Targaryens. I think he might do an interesting job. Or if you want like someone you know who actually doesn't make you want to go to sleep uh, I, I, I love the Wachowskis I know their, their work has sometimes been inconsistent for people but I've loved pretty much everything they've done I think that would I think they they have a a good handling on fantasy like visually and how to how to relate themes and you know it, it, purely on, on a visual style I'm sure Zack Snyder would do a hell of a job I would want someone else writing it but uh, <laughs> but you know he, he, he definitely knows how to handle visual fantasy so you could definitely do worse you have Brian Cogman as the writer and Zack Snyder as the... Uh, there you go. As the director. There you go. I mean, I think that's... I mean, uh, I don't know. Like, different filmmakers. Like I, Some of my favorite filmmakers, I can't really imagine doing A Song of Ice and Fire and doing, it, doing a lot of justice to it. Um, I mean, can you imagine... <laughs> um, like the Nolan brothers attempting to do, like, House of the Dragon and stuff like that? It just doesn't seem like they would really do it. No, because... <laughs> look... <laughs> They would ha- one of the main appeals of watching a House of the Dragon style show would be the costumes, right? And everyone loves yep. the costumes in Game of Thrones. We'd all love seeing Targaryen costumes, and everyone in Christopher Nolan movies is wearing Christopher Nolan's clothes, so that's not going to work. They're just wearing his boring suits. So yeah, that would be a problem. Christopher Nolan is another one that's like a clearly massively talented filmmaker who thinks through every aspect of his movies, uses his budgets incredibly well. But my problem with him is the actual aesthetic is just mm-hmm. like. Like people in gray suits in rooms that are a slightly different shade of gray. So, like for, for 
for visual fantasy, I think he's 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 not quite your dude. That, that's that's just my the guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. All right, uh, we got a question from Lewis R which I can't find right now, but he asks, what is going to be the fate of Jane Poole in The Song of Ice and Fire? Hmm. <laughs> well, so at this point, as of Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter, Stannis has ordered Justin Massey to drop quote-unquote Arya, Jane Poole, off at Castle Black with Jon Snow, because Stannis thinks he's doing that in payment for Jon uh, helping him out with his campaign and revealing the Karstark betrayal. Now, of course, John has been assassinated, and at the time John has been assassinated, Justin Massey and uh, Jane Poole have not shown up, even though Theon's Winds Winter chapter, I think, technically takes place before uh, John's last chapter in Dance. So they're on the way, presumably, and they will presumably show up to find, you know, chaos. So I, I've theorized, a bunch of other people have theorized that maybe Justin Massey ends up taking Jane Poole with him when he goes to Bravo. So Stannis ordered him just to keep her safe because, you know, John is dead and there's chaos at Castle Black. And maybe that's in part what triggers Arya's return home is that she encounters someone else, someone she knows being referred to as Arya Stark. And she's like, what? No, I'm not supposed to be the mask that other people wear. I'm supposed to wear other people's faces. And maybe this brings her identity crisis to a, you know, to a, to a climax. But regardless of whether that happens, of course, that's not that's not a, a pursuant to Jane Poole's ultimate fate. Um, you know, it's it's really going to depend on who realizes she's not Arya, <laughs> and who who publicizes that. I think if that gets made public in in a context in which Stannis is in charge, that's really bad news for her, and she might not be safe from that much longer. I think if. It takes place in the political context in which John is in charge. He's certainly not going to be happy about it, but I think Jane is, is much more likely to be well off. My, my, my fondest hope for her, she ends up living in Winterfell afterwards, like another old Nan figure. But yeah. uh, there, are, there are a lot of dangers surrounding her as it stands, so I could, I could see it possible that she succumbs to any one of them, certainly. Yeah, I mean, my hope is that she goes away to Bravos and stays in Bravos forever for the rest nope. of her life and, you know... That's interesting. Because Bravo seems like an interesting place to be. Not just an interesting place to be, but a place that seems not completely free of violence, but relatively free of violence when compared to Westeros and compared to the oncoming apocalypse that is headed for Winterfell in the form of the others. Uh, so I, I, I hope that she stays there. Maybe, but I, th- I think it's that you bring up an interesting question about what happens if like Justin Massey finds out that Jane is not actually Arya. And that's, uh, that's something that would be really rough. So I was reading rereading the sacrifice from from Asha's point of view this afternoon and we'll re-listening to it because of course I don't read um, and it Justin Massey comes across as like very grasping and attempting to climb up the ladder sure. in terms of like marrying his way up and I think he looks at Jane as a potential way Jane slash Arya as a potential way that he could climb in esteem and Stannis' perspective potentially win himself a uh, and, and this is going to be weird so I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit so in that in that chapter and in the King's Prize chapter before that, Justin Massey is attempting to marry Asha Greyjoy in order to potentially wed her claim to the Iron Islands because he has been disinherited of his holdings in the uh, in Massey's Hook, which is a, a, an area of the Crownlands uh, in in Westeros. So would might Justin Massey be like, hmm, Asha doesn't seem to be going. We're not. I'm not Asha might die at the Battle of Ice, but hey, I've got Arya Stark who I could potentially marry, right? And that kind of leads to a weird, sure, kind of sure. gross place for for Justin Massey to be, and I don't think he is above doing that. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a very good point. His characterization has been very well established. His desire to move up through marriage, especially since yeah, all these these people with Stannis have lost their homes. 
in the Crown Lands and Stormlands as a consequence of staying with him. So I could definitely see him wanting that and then being really, really pissed off when he finds out the truth. So I could maybe he would abandon her or something. I hope, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, what a character deserves is pointless to even talk about because that's just not what a story is. Uh, but yeah. I, but you know, one can hope for her uh, having a happy life in Bravos because what's Bravos of you know a city of but you know strivers and people wandering down crooked alleys and coming up with new lives. So I could see her being happy there. I hope. Yeah, I hope she's happy and she stays far, far away from Justin Massier. Gets uh, gets away from that. Um, we got a question from. Uh, From Joe Magician. Uh, I know I'm him. trying to find it. Yeah, I know that guy too. Who would be the worst person for Euron Greyjoy to meet in A Song of Ice and Fire? Who would be the worst person for them? <laughs> <laughs> no, for a Euron to meet. So. Uh, so like the worst person, like as in it would be bad consequences for Euron or it would be bad consequences for the world? Um, for for you, Let's go with Euron. Well, I guess the answer really for both is brand, depending on how it happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know Euron. If he if he went up against Bran or Danny, someone with real power and the ability to stop him, I think unfortunately, of course, if he also met Bran, he could have the potential to you know seduce and control Bran, and that really is the end of everything right there. Like that's the ultimate that's the ultimate nightmare AU we've talked about before is uh, if Theon actually takes Asha's or took Asha's advice, you know, when she was, he was still in the position to take it, if he took Bran and Rickon with him and mm-hmm. just raised Winterfell, took them back as hostages to Pike, that what probably would have ended up happening is Euron comes home, kills Palin and Theon, and takes Bran as prisoner. And that is the worst possible scenario in the story. Because then it's just, then you have the two superpowers combined. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, Frank brings up an interesting perspective. Stannis being the worst person for your own team. A useful perspective, Frank. Certainly Victorian did not enjoy his, <laughs> his one meeting with Stannis. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, Bran would be meeting on the Astral Plains, but as you've talked about really well oh, sure. in the past. Is, uh, That'd be a hoot. I, I, hopefully it will be a hoot. Hopefully it will be the place where, uh, where Euron meets his downfall, because I don't think um, Euron being defeated on the battlefield seems all that really satisfying, but him being defeated in like his own game that he's playing as a god yeah as a god by the real one uh, yeah agreed gets his uh gets his ass beat that way sounds really really good all right we'll take go ahead no i was gonna say heck yeah yeah you want to take one or two more yeah it's just just two more and then we'll uh we'll call it a night and again appreciate everyone sticking around and absolutely asking questions and chatting and everything like that it's really really good i'm not sure the best way to kind of phrase this this question I think it's an interesting one to ask. I just don't want to, to come across. SKNC asks, I've heard a lot of people say that George Martin tends to have a fairly woman-like prose. I mostly agree, but I imagine you don't. Why? Workman-like, I think. Workman? Oh, shit. I was reading that wrong the entire time. <laughs> well, I understand your confusion now. <laughs> uh, what, what, is a, what is a workman-like pose? Prose. Work, workman-like prose, I guess not um, like kind of just uh, to the point and kind of functional. Um, which, uh, no, not really. I mean, compared to Tolkien specifically, yes. But everyone has workmanlike prose compared to Tolkien because, you right. know, that's, that's how Tolkien rolls. I think George, no, I think, I, th- I think there are many moments when George just utterly delights in language and, and delights in imagery for, for its own sake. I think... You know, maybe I think there are moments like we were talking about where he's he's very kind of uh, you know raised on TV and fast movies in a lot of ways, and there there are times he's very kind of urgent and, and pushing the ball forward. 
but no, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. There, there. You know, there are certain phrases that are like you know the the state of their arousal was arousing or whatever that is in a Dance with Dragons that maybe fit that definition. Um, but no, otherwise no, I I, I would not describe uh, George as a as a as a workmanlike writer at all. I think yeah, he's, it's just not not quite as as self consciously poetic maybe as some other fantasy writers. Yeah, I. I I think he's actually pretty good. I mean, like if you just because I've, I've been reading Asha chapters, I apologize because I keep referencing Asha chapters, but uh, Asha and Theon chapters specifically, um, like the way we're bride stuff is like really just like outstanding. That's a good example. Prose. Yeah, it's um, it's 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 amazing the way that George actually writes that and writes the battle uh, with the moonlight coming down on them and. Uh, it, it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about Tolkien writing when the when the lightning flashes off of the end. You see all the white hands up there. The way that George writes, yes, all of the light, the moonlight coming down on on the battle itself is just outstanding prose. I think that George does really good. I think he does some other stuff that's not as good, but or not not just not as good, just as more workmanlike. If we want to use that womanlike as, uh, as <laughs> I was saying before, <laughs> womanlike prose. So I was about to like debate. <laughs> I had this like I was, I was trying to like think through like should I feature this question? Should I not feature? <laughs> I don't, yeah. I, I'm going to respond to this. I don't think he has much in the ways of woman-like prose. No, not much. Well, woman-like, yeah, I was, I was going to dispute the premise of the question altogether because I'm like, what yeah, is what's, what's like yeah. prose? As what Angela Davis exactly? once said in her very woman-like prose, yeah, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what that would be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron Ab asks, who's of course one of our sworn sword patrons, mm-hmm. what is the best Marvel movie? Well, they're all compromised and corrupt. What are you going to do? No, um, uh, I, I really, I really enjoy Thor Ragnarok a lot. I thought that um, that was the, I think that was that was the most clever and kind of thought through from a, a, a visual perspective. And I thought uh, um, was doing some sneakily serious things in the background, but didn't take itself uh, too seriously. I also, uh, I also really liked Black Panther. I thought that was a great script and kind of an interesting thought through premise. I think it suffers as a lot of the Marvel movies and a lot of popcorn movies and do where they, they you know they they hint at like kind of crazier and more radical ideas than they can actually deliver. So you have you yeah. know the villain has to be ninety percent right but conveniently ten percent wrong and take it too far because he can't have actual criticisms to make. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that the Marvel movies kind of often fall into to that category. But I like I like Ragnarok and Black Panther and the Guardians ones that are more visually distinct because I think one criticism of the Marvel movies that is completely dead on is that most of them look like they were just shot in a square room with like yep. some shelves and they're yep. just like not aesthetically interesting at all. So what, what would be your pick? Is, the color grading is just yeah for the Marvel movies just yeah. tend to be very boring to watch. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not a Marvel fanatic. I I I'd like. The movies at some level um i think uh i think for me i think the ones that i find to be the most emotionally poignant are in infinity war and an Endgame. i mean that seems like a really kind of standard pedestrian answer but i do think that those two movies do pack an emotional punch and at several points in in the stories themselves agreed uh probably my favorite one though is guardians of the galaxy just because I, I love the infusion of, of music and kind of an upbeat action comedy type movie i think that's really it was just a lot of fun. It's 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 a movie, and maybe for many of you guys who are folks who are, who are parents, and for those of you folks who will be parents at some point in time, you'll find this is that what time for watching movies tends to be somewhat limited, uh, and especially if you want to spend time with your spouse, and it's very important to spend time with your spouse. So Guardians of the Galaxy is a movie that my, my wife and I both really enjoy, and uh, 
that that's kind of the one that I probably like the most, just given the given that uh, I can enjoy sitting next to the person I love the most in this world. So that's uh, oh yeah, no, I mean I, I remember watching uh, Thor Ragnarok with Chloe. So yeah, they're they are yeah they um they're 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 good communal movies. I don't I don't know how well they'll age as cinematic experiences on the whole. <laughs> But I have enjoyed watching them with the people in my life, and they are—they are part part of the the memories and backdrop of my life. And I think that's—I think that's kind of what they are for a lot of people. Yeah, it's all—it's all really, really good. All right. Well, well I think that about uh, wraps us up. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much again, folks, for coming out. I know we're uh, we're repeating ourselves there, but we just appreciate it so much that you uh, that you're here with us. You know. Um, I'm just uh, missing a lot of people in the many w- directions of my life, and uh, so it's good to be here with you. And yeah, I saw that comment; that was hysterical. <laughs> I yeah, I mean it's 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 good to have everybody here in one place, not not in actuality, but in technicality, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that's that's really really good. Um, and you know, if you guys have the chance, we we did um, in lieu normally for our YouTube videos, we do link to like our our normal stuff and things like that. But in the description box for this video, we do link to some causes that are worthy of, of your financial support or if not your financial support, just, uh, your voice of, um, your, your voice or even signature, really some of these, these aspects of it. So please take a look at, at, at some of those. Um, and you know, keep your ears open, educate, keep, stay educated and, uh, stay safe always. And we are. We wanted to announce. We said this in our post for all patrons, but uh, our long promised T-shirts. We're sorry that those have been so long delayed. Obviously, a lot of different stuff has come up in real life, and the artist we we work with has been super busy. So we're so sorry about that. It is still on our list. It's just you know we have a, a lot of things in life and in art to get through first, and our, we're, we're we're keeping our, our options open and exploring them right now. Maybe we'll we'll look at a, a different artist. Maybe we won't. Um, but we just, want, we just want you to know that we, we are working on that. And we're really sorry for the delay, so we are going to get those out to everyone as soon as we can. Absolutely. And we appreciate everyone's patience, too, and, and, and waiting for that for that rewards benefit on our, on our Patreon. So very much thank you all very much for your patience and, and all of that. And we'll, uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can on it. Thanks, Dre. All right. Well, that about wraps us up for this Stump the Chumps episode of the Nauticast podcast. Appreciate everyone listening. Thank you to all of our patrons. And thank you to those who are listening to this on your headphones or watching us. We really appreciate your eyes and ears. One and the same. Stay safe. And uh, we will see you guys in next week for Clash of Kings Davos 2. That's funny. You didn't, you didn't write me a really cool line to say about Davos 2. What's going to happen in Davos 2? Everything. Be everything lo- happens in Davos 2. <laughs> it's one of those chapters. Uh, if you guys didn't know, Rabbit writes uh, the, the final lines and, and, I, and I get to read them, which is always a, a, a <laughs> so it's all, all credit to him for writing those cool lines to kind of close out our episodes. So we really appreciate you guys and we'll see you next week for Clash Kings Davos 2.